What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Reel, episode 480. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we're tackling the entire filmography of filmmaker James Gray, who's obviously been in the news a lot lately with his film Ad Astra. And for this deep dive into his career, we've got Carlo Pangalangan Labrador, who's not with Mikhail for once. Today you're actually going to be able to finish a sentence without him jumping all over you and interrupting you. Although... I've been known to interrupt from time to time myself, but I will resist the urge and try to let you speak your piece. But welcome back to Wrong Real. Hello, hello, hello. Yes, thank you for having me back. Oh, man, I will just say, though, I don't feel like Mikhail interrupts, but rather continues my thought. Okay, that's, <laughs> so a, that. that's, a, that's a very polite way of putting it. That's a very nice way of saying it. But yeah, I love the yeah. energy that you and Mikhail have together. But last time I recorded, which I guess was about music videos... We had this idea at the end, and I was at that time. I'd only seen Lost City of Z, aka Lost City of Z, depending upon if you're British yeah. or American, and I'd right. yet to see Ad Astra. But in between then and now, I've gotten fully up to speed and I've seen all of James Gray's movies. But I always enjoy tackling filmographies with which I'm largely unfamiliar. So I'm fired up and I'm ready to go. Yeah, me too. I'm excited. I mean, it's perfect timing also that you know he has a new feature out right now in theaters. So He's relevant, like, yeah, and I, I hope, like, a lot of people, because I think this is, like, his biggest release ever, that people are coming across his work um, for uh, the first biggest time. Biggest probably at- in terms of budget, but it remains to be mm-hmm. seen in terms of box office, I think, is <laughs> yeah, dying. No, oh, yeah, well, we'll, we'll get into that, for yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, before we talk about his <laughs> yeah. movies, you mentioned before we started recording that you're starting to gear up for a little short of your own. Is that, you want to keep, uh, you want to divulge any of that, or you want to keep that behind uh, closed doors? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about it, like I guess in broad strokes. Um, I mean, it's also the reason why Mikhail is not here too, right? Because we should explain. Like, yeah, he's, um, he's all fired yeah. up and getting ready to go on this feature. So, yeah, we miss you. Like, yeah, we wish you were here. Also, because I I know like uh, Mikhail and I also bonded a lot over James Gray. So uh, I I was hoping to hear his thoughts on him. But um, also because Mikhail is Ukraine of Ukrainian descent and grew up in New yes, York, much exactly. like yeah. James Gray, whose grandparents are of Ukrainian descent. So there is yeah. some similar cultural yeah. kind of, uh, I guess, yeah, yeah. I guess in an ideal world, Mikhail would love to become James Gray. He'd love to be, become <laughs> yes. a successful filmmaker. Exactly. The, the new, yeah. he must be the new James Gray. Right. So, yeah. And then like with what I'm working on, I'm just um, trying to get going as well. Like I, um, I haven't really done anything in a year. So I want to just like do really quick, like short, I call it um, sketchbook short, which is basically similar to like how a painter will sketch before he does the actual painting. So I want to do something very quickly that, you know, I'm just shooting with one actor and, you know, it can probably be shot in a day. Uh, I'm, I'm working with like a one page outline and I'm shooting it myself. And yeah, it's also a way for me to just like experiment without like any pressure of time and budget constraints and stuff like that. So now do yeah. you like to experiment with like if you're doing a short, I feel like you don't necessarily need a, a fully fleshed out screenplay. You've got room to improvise. But do you do you like having the backbone of a screenplay to work with or you like to kind of let the movie um, push you around a bit on the set? No, it's just basically like something to jump off of. I don't even like look at it once I start shooting. I just like base it off memory. And it's also something just for the actors so they know like there's something, we're heading towards something that it's not just like, 
I'm making it up as I'm going along like I have. And yeah, that whole building of trust, especially when you're just working alone with them, you know, it's like they need something to kind of grasp. So. Uh, absolutely. So <laughs> not working them. totally in a vacuum. Right. <laughs> well, very cool. Well, apart from getting up to speed on Ad Astra movies, have you seen anything cool in the theater lately? Because I feel like we're at that time of year where a lot of really yeah. cool stuff is coming out. We've got New York Film Festival still ongoing here in New York. Right. But have you seen yes. anything that's really struck your fancy as of late? Um, yeah. I mean, I, I should bring up like First Love, which is the latest Takashi Miike film. Gotcha. Um, How was that? Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I love his good. movies, but I, he makes so fucking many. I think I've seen yeah. like less than 10% of his total output. <laughs> no, that's most people. I mean, it's hard to really keep up. I think you would have to have like, you know, that kind of butt numathon type of, you know, just to watch all his movies. Like it's impossible to really keep up with how many he makes. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not like one of his like super demented films, but it's not Itchy the Killer or Visitor no. Q or one of those fucked no, up things. No, it's, it's not on that level or one of his more recent like crazy movies was um, The Mole Song, which I really loved. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, this one is more like uh, he was given like standard lovers on the run type of script and then gotcha. he just has fun with it. And there's like some really insane like touches but not really like it doesn't go completely like off the rails you know like, the what was that the gangster trilogy he did early in his career I'm, I'm... um there uh there's a the black society trilogy the sinjuku triad and rainy dog and um lee lines i think there's one that's called the... like love and death or something or i'm totally blanking hang on let me boom 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 boom, boom. Oh. There's also the Dead or Alive trilogy. Exactly. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. Dead or Alive. Does, yeah, it, yeah. does it have yeah. any overlap with the Dead or Alive trilogy? No, no. I mean, but he does love going back to the Yakuza um, like storylines. Like, So this is another like Yakuza story. Um, but uh, yeah, it just doesn't have that kind of... Uh, it, it's a little more restrained, I think. But uh, he has fun with it. Like, there is one moment in the movie, which I won't spoil, that like I just completely lost it in the theater. Like, I was just like... Oh my god, like he just pulled that off. Like, you know, he has one moment like that. And I mean, you know, even if you see the trailer, like, there are moments in the trailer where you're like, oh shit, like, it's dynamic. Like, you know, even though um, it kind of starts off very stately and slow. And um, uh, I mean, this is something that, you know, former guest of the show, friend of the show, Jake, uh, Jacob Rivero, like, is the main character is a boxer. Okay, so, very cool. Yeah, so that's kind of used in the film um, as like an element as well. So there's all these things going on with it. And also what I like about it is that it doesn't treat that whole lovers on the run um, story the same way that most do. Like it doesn't, you know, tick all the boxes of what lovers on the run is. Well, I guess so. like in America, we've got things like Badlands and True Romance and things like that. Right. that really kind of define that genre in a lot of ways. And it's hard to escape their shadow. Right. And this one does it very well because it focuses on... Um, the surrounding events and the surrounding characters like I mean that is the thing like the the cast is great and they all give like incredible performances so I'm looking at his IMDB profile right now it's just <laughs> his output is obscene he's got 103 director credits and it's not like oh it's a bunch wow. of short films and music videos yeah most of these are features are features yeah. <laughs> like maybe, I mean, some of, the, maybe some of them are made for tv or some of them are shorts for like three yeah, extremes yeah. and things like right. that but on the whole yeah. it's just feature after feature after feature and yeah. a lot of them are just incredible <laughs> it's just they like, are i mean it's it's just like he utilizes that energy and i mean 2001 really was like a defining year for him because you know that was the year that he made audition and, and that's 99 uh, but i think it got like oh, maybe got like oh, a, yeah, a wider right, yeah, release yeah, maybe in america in 2001, yeah, 2001 but and 
it was like there was there were just a bunch of his films that were coming out in two thousand one. It was that one, and then also um, uh, yeah, shit. Like uh, Ichi the Killer the was Hill. that year. Yeah. Visitor Q was that year, and suddenly, and that Happiness yeah. of the Catacurries was that year, which I love. I think Happiness <laughs> of the Catacurries is funny right. as hell. But while well, I was living in L.A. at the time, and suddenly he was just everywhere. Like if you went by. The, the new art, there's probably going to be one of his movies playing, and like, all of a sudden all of his DVDs were all over Cinephile. It's just, yeah. he really just exploded and popped. I, I, then all of a sudden you started seeing him do things like, um, oh, what was it? Yeah, the Masters of Horror episode imprint. And so yeah. I, I liked it when he started yeah. kind of overlapping with some of his American counterparts. And that imprint episode of Masters of Horror was terrifying. It was a really disturbing I should, I should stuff. Watch it. I haven't seen it. Yeah, I heard because it got um, banned, right? Like, they didn't broadcast it because it was too extreme. It's really fucking... Yeah. Like, this is a TV okay. show? Like, oh my god! Right. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, he's got, yeah, like, his like third or fourth or fifth act when he started doing things like thirteen, like the remake of 13 Assassins and the remake yeah. of Yeah, and that's, I think, where people started dropping off because they were like, what happened to, like, the insane director that we, we knew? Because it was like, oh, he's doing by-the-numbers projects. But I think he's always been that way. It's just like he's always just been like a, a, a workman-like type director, but he has ideas of his own that he brings to the work. But he is also just willing to do like Ace Attorney, which is like, a, um, you know, a, a video game adaptation, which just looks awful. I haven't seen it. But what's incredible like, like he was born in 1960. He's, he's not, he's 59 years old. He might work yeah. another 20 years. Like he might have 200 movies by the time, by the time he's fucking uh, yeah. done. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, very cool. Well, let's switch gears to quite a different filmmaker entirely. James Gray, yeah. who's got a reverse output. He's only got a, a, a couple of movies to his name. Seven. So tell people out there, I, I think a lot of people know who he is. I think a lot of people like some of his movies, but who is James Cray? James Cray how did he get a start? Well, we're, we're, right. Give us the origin story of James yeah, Cray. Okay. Yeah, let's do that. And I mean, yeah, this would be the part that would be great for Mikhail to explain because he could do it in his personal perspective because of you had mentioned the very similar background of Ukrainian Jewish descent. So um, everybody just says, like, if you look up his bio, it always just says he's from Queens. But, you know, I lived in Queens for eight years. So I want to know, like, which part, like, which specific part. Yeah, Queens and is big. Exactly. Yeah, it is. So he's from Forest Hills, so he grew up in Forest Hills. And strangely enough, he's never made a film there, even though he has made a film in Queens, which we'll get into. But um, he has never made a film in in the neighborhood where he grew up, which um, surprises me considering, because I've been to Forest Hills, like to me, like it's, it has cinematic potential. I actually made a short film with Mikhail that he was like my DP and he shot it. Um, It was like the last thing I made actually before leaving New York. Um, and we shot it in, in Forest Hills. So, um, uh, but yeah, so he comes from, from that background. Um, his, his dad worked for the MTA. I think he was like a contractor for the MTA, uh, like an uh, electrician. Um, and, uh, yeah, Yeah, the story from the yards is loosely based on an event that his father was involved in. So, yes, exactly. I mean, all the films are actually somehow touching upon something that's personal within him. So, um, he actually had aspirations of being a painter. That was his first ambition. But then, you know, it's kind of like, this is one of my favorite quotes. Like it's in, um, it's not by him, but it relates to a lot of people I know who have gotten into filmmaking. So um, <laughs> this is from Carlos Cuaron, who's um, Alfonso Cuaron's brother. And in the making of, uh, they, there's like this Criterion special feature on Solo con tu pareja, which was the first film they made. And uh, Carlos Cuaron talks about it of like how, you know, him and literature were like um, these uh, sweaty, palm, nervous lovers holding hands. And then 
his brother introduced him to the horror of cinema and he left <laughs> he left his lover for the horror of cinema and he says like what what can i say um you know she gave great head i'm easy yeah it's funny how <laughs> filmmakers are always comparing cinema to like a hooker or a mistress or a drug addiction <laughs> right. like there's that yeah. famous quote by frank capra about how you know the only antidote it's like like heroin the only antidote is more cinema or more film and yeah. things like that it's, yeah but it also it's an expensive mistress and it can be destructive and <laughs> right. for a lot of filmmakers yeah. it can be the path to ruin because it's right. so addictive and so all-consuming people will mortgage their homes or sell their children or sell right. their cum or whatever the case might be to get their movies made <laughs> or rack get up a bunch of debt yeah. yeah like yeah, james exactly. gray i know he racked up a bunch of credit card debt to help with the budget on little odessa so that's obviously yes. yeah, a yeah. tried and true method yeah, for so, a lot of filmmakers yeah, in the so, 90s and yeah that whole metaphor is like kind of you know getting lured away from your first love you know whatever art that may be but it's usually like yeah they are some other type of artist and you know they apply that kind of discipline to filmmaking and you know that's the thing about film right it's like all the other arts kind of converge somehow in there somehow so um with him like yeah he he fell in love with film specifically like uh, francis ford coppola's films um and uh also fellini was also somebody but i think that was when he decided to go to film school so he went to usc he left new york for the first time like he had you know he's he's always been in new york city like he even says that like i never traveled like west of the the east river so, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah he mentioned that um so uh so yeah he went to well, usc he never yeah. even traveled west of the east river that kind of also excludes yeah, manhattan like he's a creature of queens <laughs> exactly. at that point <laughs> right yeah exactly but you know there is that thing about new yorkers right like um oh, uh, we, we like, i live my entire existence in just a handful of blocks like i have certain theaters right. that i go to like i'll go to brooklyn for like the alamo draft house or i'll go up to like like the upper west side to go to that really nice uh, amc that's up there like at 60th and broadway but for the most part i try to stay below 14th street at all times yeah. and right. on the whole i pretty much stay north of like the house so it's like i have this like narrow sliver of that of the island that i call my home yeah i can't recall which movie specifically i saw um but uh i just remember there was a scene where it's like a, a father figure a dad telling um like the son was saying like hey dad i'm like going to manhattan and then it's like the dad is like well why do you need to go to manhattan for everything's here in brooklyn like, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> it's like that kind of thing that like new yorkers like native new yorkers like they're usually they don't really know the city that well because they're like so specific to their. Otherwise, like, oh, that's not my neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, like, why would they? I mean, I I know a lot of people who live in Manhattan too are just like, well, you know, I've I've done my my trip to Brooklyn for the month or something like that. Like, I mean, it, it's like they 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 actually count the times that they have. Oh to yeah, go like my little brother lives in Fort Greene over in Brooklyn, so I'll go see him. <laughs> Or I'll go see like an athletic event at Barclays Center, or I'll go to like the Nighthawk, or I'll go to the Alamo Draft House. But otherwise, I never go to Brooklyn ever. Right. <sighs> yeah. So it is a, a strange thing of like living in one city your whole life, but not actually knowing the rest of it. I mean, even oh, like there are a shitload of commuters who right. commute between the various yeah. boroughs, and they spend like my little brother goes from Fort Greene up to Columbia every day, and it's an like wow. an hour fifteen door to door to get there, and it's just like Jeez. I can't imagine spending two and a half hours a day on the fucking subway going back and forth, but right. that is the life he has chosen. Yeah, I mean that was the thing that actually my first kind of exposure to that too was like. Um, seeing that Anthony Bourdain episode where he comes back to New York and he goes to Queens and he had never been there. And like, he was like in the upper East side, like, or upper West side. Oh no. Yeah. East side. He was on the upper East side the whole time in his life. And he never went to Queens. Yeah, so it's like you can see Queens from the upper East side. It's right across the water. <laughs> Although <laughs> right. I've never been to Jersey city. Actually, that's not true. 
I've driven through Jersey City a million times, like driving like to like go to the airport. But obviously, Jersey City is right across the Hudson. You can see it. And there was one time I went across it very briefly to a hotel where a friend of mine was staying. Actually, you know what? That's not true. I'm lying. He came across, and I met him at a hotel right on. So yeah, I, like Jersey City, I've been looking at it for 11 years. Like it's within view, but I still have right. not set foot in it. Yeah, exactly. So that kind of I think gives us an idea of how you know, James Gray's, like, worldview is shaped and how his filmography progresses, you know, um, because of, of that experience of just, like, kind of tunnel vision of New York City. Oh, you Queen. really feel it in his first couple of movies, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. You can, he's got right. some, some serious preoccupation with some New York themes and topics. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, do you want to discuss, like, I, I guess... We're, we're going to go bang, 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 one after another. Like, right. Obviously, this is a survey... Yeah. And yeah. we won't be able to do the deep dive on all of these, but the ones that are really important yeah. to you, oh, go, sure. go, go, go yeah, berserk, because I know you'll like Absolutely. some more than others. But yep. Little Odessa, 1994, but it's his first feature. Yep. What do you think about his debut film? There is a small world of family. Close friends and mortal enemies. Get up! Fuck up! What'd you tell about me? Nobody. Go insult me, I'll cut it off. A world where loyalty is undying. But I've heard rumors about that mongrel of a son of yours. I will hold you responsible if he's here. And a single offense is remembered forever. He was making a call in the phone booth when the mice found him. A man exiled from his world has returned to his family. Nobody can know I'm here. Not your friends, not any of the relatives, nobody. Have you seen him or are you going to see him? Because I really need to talk to him. The brother he must protect. Your uh, brother is in town, no? Worships him. You've been very strong. I love you. What do you want from me? I just wanted to tell you I understand. The girl he loves fears him. You killed Boris Volkov's son? That's what you get for now, right? Shoot someone? We got a problem. You all know I'm here, that's a problem. We're gonna work together. What if we don't wanna help? His name is Joshua. Get the tongue. And his world is called Little Odessa. I wanna come home and see Ma. I think they're dead. What'd you do? I took some things. Starring Tim Roth. This is my last job. After this, I'm out, out of New York. Edward Furlong. We are all proud to be Americans. Moira Kelly. I thought we were going to do some things. Vanessa Redgrave. I know you can change. You don't believe it, but I know you can. I'll that to you. Maximilian Schell. Get out of my house. I'm fucking okay. killing you! You fuck your head on me! Georgia is not your brother anymore. Understand? Once a son. Shut up! Shut the fuck up! I don't know what made you what you are. Down. Now, an outcast. You have destroyed us. You have destroyed our family. Little Odessa. Yeah, so 25 years old, very impressive. You know, <laughs> just to come out with a film that, I mean, right out of the gate, you can just sense like there's this yeah, confidence. The movie's 25 years old, but he was also 25 when he made it, so it's kind of a weird. Right. I know, right? <laughs> Coincidence. He turned 50 this year. It's like, yeah, um, like at, right at the midpoint. But the other incredible thing about it is that, you know, for such a wonderkin to like come out with this film at such a young age, even though, yeah, it apparently took him a couple of years. So he must have started like pre-production when he was 23, like right out of USC. Um, he 
like he didn't make another film until 2000. Like there was a big gap between the next one. So instead of like, you know, you're you're this young hot director making this debut, like he kind of vanished for you know maybe up to like six years until the Yards came out in 2000. Well, I imagine and, a lot of that interim between that and the Yards was trying to get the Yards up and running because like Little yeah. Odessa, it was a, it's a cool movie, but it's a small movie, and it's yeah. hard. It's, I mean, the 90s. Was such a huge boom in the New York independent film scene, and but I imagine there's but that also means a ton of competition, and he's had a very yeah. troubled history with Harvey Weinstein, not yes. from like in terms of any sexual abuse or anything like that, but just in terms of the business side <laughs> yeah. of filmmaking. And yeah. I think a lot of the gap between like when the yards arrived was him fighting mm. with Harvey over uh, the ending right. of the movie. So in the uh, what's that famous book about independent film in the 90s? I'm totally blanking on it. Um, Easy Riders and Raging no, that's Bulls. That's what I mean, was written in the 90s, but that, that was about the late 60s, early 70s. But oh, there's same, another one. Same author? Is it um, Peter? Hang on. Well, when we get to... When I, I've got, actually, I've yeah. got the Yards... The book is called Down and Dirty Pictures. Yes, yeah, so Peter Biskind. It's his second yeah. book, Down and Dirty Pictures. Yeah. But it's all about the – on several occasions, he's had massive debates with Harvey Weinstein over the, the tone yeah. of films, the ending of films. And Harvey's one of those kind of spiteful Harvey's bastards. Hands, right? He will just say, all right, well, if you're not going to cooperate with me, then I will delay the release of your movie by two years. Mm-hmm. Or instead of putting right. it in 2,000 screens, I'm going to put it at 150. And he will right. essentially – sabotage and destroy movies just to teach these filmmakers a lesson. And I think James Gray's career has been hindered as a result of losing a lot of those battles with Harvey. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah. And just going back, I I do want to get into that with, um, with the yards, but um, to little Odessa, like it is kind of a homecoming for him. Like the way that like Tim Roth's character begins in LA, like the, the opening hit, like you can tell that he's in LA. Well, I guess for me, I'm, and that is something that I pay attention to in his movies in terms of locations. Like the street sign in the background, I could just tell like, oh, that's definitely like an L.A. street sign. And he, he shoots that guy who's like sitting on the bench waiting for the bus. And then I'm like, oh, OK, so he has to go back home. And it's him kind of coming to terms with, um, uh, I guess, his past and, you know, kind of reconciling it. And I do feel like the movie did suffer from its timing of, of when it came out because, you um, Obviously, having Tim Roth in it and him kind of being like this gangster with a gun, like and all these movies coming out around that same time, they just kind of got lumped into like Tarantino clones. Yeah, you there know? was a 90s yeah. boom of kind of tough talking gangster movies, some mm-hmm. of which were made by like suburban kids who just love movies and some of right. which were made by people who had some real yeah. authentic knowledge of certain right. environments. But it was very easy just from like the box art saying, oh, this is, like you said, yet another Tarantino clone. It's living in the shadow of Reservoir Dogs, living in the shadow of Pulp Fiction. But there's so many like Search and Destroy and California and uh, Love in a 45. And it's it's kept – it was like Uh, this – Things to do in Denver, but you're Yeah, just wave after wave after wave. (laughs) And it was like, oh my god. And it's like, all right, enough. I can't watch right. any more of these movies. <laughs> yeah, and but it is interesting now that like the dust is settled. Like there are some of those movies that I think are actually worth revisiting and going back to. Like actually, my personal favorite is Palooka Bill oh, with gotcha. Vincent Gallo. Yeah, by Alan Taylor, who just became like a house director for HBO. Like he just directs like random episodes. He for, was like Game of Thrones you know, and stuff like. But he did. Didn't he do yeah. Thor: The Dark World? Mikhail's favorite movie. 
<laughs> I had no idea. I never saw it. So, yeah, hang on. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Thor, the yeah. Dark World. Probably, yeah. It's one, I mean, I'm being facetious for people that don't know, but Mikhail, <laughs> one of his least favorite movies he's ever seen is Thor, the Dark World in 2000. Yeah, oh, Alan, okay, Alan Taylor, 2013. There you go. Yeah, but Palookaville is great. Like, it, it really is like a, if you're thinking like Tarantino clones and also a great performance by Vincent Gallo, but even like, Going back to Little Odessa, like once you kind of get over that, like the the context of it, it's like there is certain aspects of it, and that's what fascinates me more. Um, even like leading into the yards is just the peripheral details that he likes to focus on. Well, uh, uh, for me, what makes the movie worth watching is the relationship between Edward Furlong's character and Tim Roth, because Edward Furlong. He's kind of a ne'er-do-well teen. He's been skipping right. school for months, and suddenly his older brother steps back into their lives, and his older brother's cool and confident, and he's, you know, he right. gets the girl, and obviously he's fascinated by his older brother, and his older brother's not allowed to come home because his father knows he's a murderer. He's like, I'm not going to yeah. have an assassin for the, for the Russian mafia coming by our <laughs> home, in spite of the fact that, they're, um, that the mother right. is yeah. dying of a, of a brain tumor, I believe. But watching Tim Roth and Ed, Ed Furlong's interactions, I love how he's the classic abusive older brother who also likes his younger brother, like how he'll yeah. kind of push him over when he's getting on his bicycle or if he's examining mm -hmm. a bruise Slaps on his face. Him. He'll kind yeah. of squeeze his face and turn it to right. the side. Like it's a very rough brotherly. Yeah, life. I mean, it, but I, it's how Tim Roth's character interacts with everybody. Like, I mean, the, the shot in the film that really like lasts in my mind is when he first like kind of goes into that uh, it's like the side office of like the auto shop or whatever it is. And he meets up with like his old friends. And one of them was the one who like told Edward Furlong that his brother was back in town. And then the other guy, he's like asking them for his, for their help. And um, the other guy says, well, what if we don't want to help you? And then he points the gun like in his face. And it's like so forceful that you see the imprint of the barrel on his cheek. And that was like one of those moments that I was just like, oh, wow, this is, yeah, like, this is like a detail that Gray really wanted to focus on of just like how, you know, brutal Tim Ross character can be. Because I, 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 I'm ambivalent towards Tim Roth. I like him as a presence, but I do feel like when he's doing like an American accent, like I'm just kind of, you know, um, iffy about it. But I, I like his performance in this because it's understated and like, you know, he isn't allowed to really express things because later on in the movie, you know, when he's encountering all these tragedies, like his reaction is just almost blank, you know. There's yeah, just, no, he's uh, definitely a moral vacuum in a lot of ways. I guess yeah. there's a little bit of his soul left in that he at least wants to see his dying mother. But yeah, a couple of years of murdering people for money will definitely right. – you, yeah. you pay a heavy toll, but man, there's right. some, but there's some really cool scenes in here that at least give you a hint of James Gray's visual kind of uh, his strengths as a director. Like when the scene when they grab the Iranian uh, jeweler and take him out to kill him, <laughs> that like burned down like abandoned warehouse, and it's all shot right. in these like high contrast mm -hmm. like lights and shadows, and it's yes. just it's nothing but silhouettes. Like whoa, okay, this is some beautiful stuff here. Yeah, you can tell James Gray has got an eye from an early age. Right. Yeah. He, he knows how to evoke atmosphere. And I mean, I think he is like one of the great directors of, of darkness and light, like especially evening time, like, you know, that that feeling of what it feels like to be out very late at night and also how cold it can be. 
you know, that it's like another big factor in, in James Gray's movies is like everybody's always cold, you know, uh, and I guess yeah, that's he doesn't from, make like, movies like do the right thing where it's like 110 degrees on like a summer day in New York. It's like, no, 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 no. no he, 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 always likes, he likes the cold, I mean, dark, bleak winter yeah. right? when, the, when the days are short and the nights are long. Right. Yeah. And this one, you can definitely feel it like, you know, you can see like the snow um, in the movie and just like how it takes a while for cars to start up in the winter. Like he 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 does touch up on those details. And that's what I gravitate to towards the film. But yeah, it's just a promising debut film. Like I and I I would I'll just say to like my chronology towards James Gray. I didn't start with this film like I, I actually started somewhere in the middle and went back to it. So, gotcha. um, yeah, I had like the hindsight. Now, a lot of new, great New York-based filmmakers were in operation in the 90s. And it seems like for people, for James Gray's critics, one of their big knocks is that James Gray is a really, really good director, but he's never quite reached the heights of the great New York directors. Obviously, in the 90s, you got Jim Jarmusch and Abel Farrar and Martin Scorsese and Brian De Palma and all these people making insanely yeah. cool classic movies. And like the way, when I look at James Gray's movies as a whole, it's a weird thing where I like a lot of his movies quite a bit, but he doesn't have that one Carlito's way or that one like uh, bad lieutenant that really oh. kind of like screams out to me. And it's like okay. uh, when I look at his entire filmography, I think it's almost like all of his movies are the tier two of one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Like if Brian mm. De Palma had made something like um, like uh, We Own the Night, like oh that's be that's one of his really good movies, but it's not one of his mm -hmm. best. Or if you're talking about Francis Ford Coppola and he'd made Lost City of Zed, like, oh, that's one of his really good movies, but it's not right. The Godfather. I, am I being too harsh? Like, on one hand, no, no, I'm kind of criticizing him, but I'm also no. acknowledging, like, I really like his movies overall, Yeah. but as I always feel like he's just like one step shy of becoming who he clearly mm -hmm. wants to be, which is David right. Lane, Francis Ford Coppola, one of these legendary giants. Yeah, no, no, I think it's totally fair, all the criticisms that are leveled against them. I can definitely see that, too. I do disagree. I do think that he has at least one masterpiece, and we'll get into that. Okay, beautiful, excellent. Uh, yeah, but, uh, like, I, I I, do see, like, the faults in his films. But because I love this one film so much, like, I do give him a free pass for all these, like... But um, I don't even flaws. see a lot of faults. Like, there's nothing wrong with yeah. making... Really, I'm making like making really good movies sound like a crime. It's like, well, shit, his movies are way better than most people's <laughs> movies. So, yeah, it's, sure, so it sounds like a backhanded compliment, but it's just one of those things where I get where some people will say, oh, well, he's really good, but he's yeah. not Scorsese, or he's really good, but he's not Jim Jarmusch. And I'm like, all right, well, I, I, I probably be, would be inclined to agree, but man, I had so much fun just ripping through these. And it, they're very bingeable. You can watch them one after another. Right. Yeah, and because sure. he starts tackling different genres, it makes it very easy to hop around his filmography. Yeah. I also love the the continuity of like um, the actors, like you know how he hops from one actor to another, and I mean especially Joaquin like plays He's such in a four big fucking part. movies, yeah, yeah, and I, I mean that's my favorite like actor directing pairings. Like I really do hope like their next they collaborate again together because like if Todd yeah, Phillips turns down he... Joker two, bring in James <laughs> Gray. <laughs> yeah, that's one I'd like to see, and uh, I'll get into that too later on with another movie. Of, with Joaquin in it. Um, well, also, to be but, fair, also, yeah. Little Odessa, it won, like Joker, won the Silver Lion at the Venice Film Festival. So it, go. it, yeah. got, it got awarded the top prize. Mm -hmm. So clearly right. people knew from the, from the word go he was a young filmmaker to be watched. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, should we get into the yards?
Hey, Ma, are you doing good? Yeah, I'm good. Then come have a beer with us. Look, I want you to come work with us. Why don't you come down with me tomorrow? We'll talk to Frank about it. The sky's the limit. You know what we do here? You're a nephew, so uh, I can help you along a little. Willie, well, you're throwing a lot of money around. What is it you do for this guy? We got people behind us. You find out what they like, and you make it happen for them. They want something for their wife or their girlfriend, get them a nice fur. If all they want is cash, there's always plenty of that. You know I can't get into no trouble. You know that. You won't get into trouble. I won't let you get into trouble. All right, you and me will go inside. devastating for us. Would you be willing to testify under oath in front of the committee? Well, you know, I would never do that. I'm not a rat. He's gonna wind up getting all of us into trouble. Maybe you should think about getting him before they do. Make sure he don't turn up. I'll go talk to him. It's way past talking. What are you doing here? Wanna get caught? Take my mother down to the neighbors right now. All right, so The Yards 2000, which I think was supposed to be released in 1998. When you watch it, you're like, Mark Wahlberg really looks young, like the big hit and kind of, you know, Boogie, Boogie Nights, Nights era. Yeah, still so not that far removed from it. But he had a lot of battles. But this is a movie, suddenly James Gray's working with like the youngest, hottest movie star around. You got Joaquin Phoenix, Charlize Theron, and Mark Wahlberg, who, man, it was, when I was watching this, I couldn't believe how nostalgic I suddenly got for the or late 90s. When you see them all walking to the nightclub, and they're so young and beautiful and good looking, about to start partying, I was like, God Damn, this reminds me so much of that period. It really it caused like this like this sense of longing for an era where I didn't really realize that I had that sense of longing. But I guess if enough time goes by, you start getting nostalgic yeah. about all kinds of shit. So right, yeah, and I'm, I mean, I should also say it's counterbalanced with like some filmmaking royalty because you also have you know um, Faye Dunaway and James Caan and Ellen Burstyn as like the parents in Absolutely the yeah so you got like yeah. one legendary generation from the late 60s early 70s followed by the next crop of young hotties from uh, from right. the late 90s all getting their start And uh, I mean I'll even mention Victor Argo you know Scorsese regular RIP Absolutely I mean, I he's great Argo. hell yeah <laughs> Yeah and I mean it's just also I guess the timing of this movie like you know, 2000 was also the the year that um, uh, Requiem for a Dream came out. So like Ellen Burstyn is basically playing like this Jewish matriarch who also like gets very sick and, you know, the son has to come back and <laughs> oh, there's like uh, some parallels running with it. But, you know, it was just the timing of it, even though this one was made way before. So for people so, who have not seen The Yards, give us the rough premise. Since this is semi, kind of sort of semi-autobiographical, so yeah, loosely I mean, based on the experiences of his father. Right. I mean, the the whole thing with James Gray's movies is there is always the personal counterbalance with, like, genre. Like, he, he will basically turn his personal experience through the filter of a genre film. And early on, he, he gravitated towards, like, crime. So um, it's loosely based on um, the corruption that was happening in the MTA in terms of, like, um, basically different contractors fighting for... Um, for the rights to, you know, basically provide and, you know, maintenance fix, and repairs like, and things. Yeah, like. all of, yeah, all of those things. So, um, 
and then it also kind of explains why, like, you know, the subway's um, so the fucked FPs up all the time. <laughs> right now, yeah, because like uh, from from that, like it, it stems back from that. And I mean, this movie does have a personal significance to me too because I lived in Sunnyside for a while, and um, uh, I used to pass by the Sunnyside yards all the time because um, it would be my walking route from Sunnyside to Astoria to go to the Museum of Moving Image. So I would always walk past it. So to see a movie where it's like, oh shit, this is my neighborhood. It's like that was that was very touching. Also, when we think uh, of like criminal movies, you always think that somehow you're going to be see like some larger than life, glamorized yeah. version of organized crime. But this is like really petty, kind of small ball. Where it's all about going out to the yards and sabotaging the work of your rivals, so that you can. It's like blue collar guys competing for blue blue collar jobs. Repairing mm-hmm. and maintaining the subways. It's not like there is like the like the Lufthansa heist in Goodfellas or something no. like that. These are like low, low, low kind of street guys who are trying to just make a few extra bucks on the side. Right. Yeah. And um, the casting in it is just perfect too. Just even like the the other supporting roles. Like you actually believe. I mean, the accents were very convincing too. Like I was just like, oh yeah, I really believe that these are like the kids from the neighborhood, and they just want to you know fuck shit up and like make some money on the side you know even again like i i go back and forth with mark Wahlberg, and that was one of the things i was worried of with this movie was just like how is he going to be doing like convincing like queen's accent you know because it's just like he, he's, he's Mr. boston hear, yeah yeah here the boston accent but i think having him restrained here and i like that he's also playing against type a little bit where it's like he's only forced to um be violent when he's like defending himself like you know he's not the aggressor which is also ironic considering that in real life you know the parallels of that he is that type of guy but in i like how james gray kind of makes him a little meek and you know um that yeah he he only is yeah, when he gets to... out of jail you're expecting him to be some kind of tough guy but he's really shaken as a person but it's yeah. joaquin phoenix right. who's got the big balls out bravado right. performance and really feels like he's got almost like like the world by the balls in a lot of way and he's kind yeah. of willing to take Mark Wahlberg under his wing and show him his very slimy trade. Yeah. And then also like um I like how that is reversed with the next movie in um in We Own the Night. Like they they kind of switch roles in a way and also just I mean they're on the other side of crime. Like here they're they're the criminals and in in We Own the Night they're the cops. Um but yeah, I mean the whole thing with this movie again it's just promising to me like it it is there's it has like really well done moments but like uh as a whole like i just didn't really feel like it was a good movie (laughs) yeah it was all right it was some really strong scenes like there's one scene where mark Wahlberg and joaquin phoenix throw down and apparently they cover themselves in pads and they just Mm -hmm. fight and they were quite literally black and blue but as you're watching it you're thinking well, those, I can tell it's not stunning because it's close enough yeah, where you yeah. can see it. it's like, Jesus right. Christ. But these are just really young, invested actors who are like, right. we're taking over Hollywood, yeah. motherfuckers. Get out of our way. And they are so completely immersed in their roles. Right. So that level of intensity and dedication I found really enjoyable to watch. Absolutely. And then it's it's also just beautifully shot by Harris Savides. I, they never worked together again. That was This was their only um, collaboration together. But... Uh, I, I should also note that almost all of James Gray's films are shot in the two three five aspect ratio. Like they're always like in widescreen, and it's important to note that in the yards because I, this is something that I wrote in my notes. It says somehow Harvey Weinstein will find a way to fuck you. 
And, and that's exactly what Harvey Weinstein did to James Unless Drake. you make him a lot of money, Denise Deja, out of your yeah. like. But even with like Quentin Tarantino, he's sometimes tried to f- inject his opinions when Tarantino, Tarantino doesn't necessarily want yeah. them. But he just he's a he's a tough producer, right. so he made he acquired a lot of foreign films and he made a lot of independent films happen. But man, mm-hmm. it wasn't like it wasn't like a benevolent dictator. Right. <laughs> he, no, he was, no, no, he was an authoritarian I mean, dictator. This is the only James Gray movie where a director's cut exists um, because of the, the Harvey Weinstein stuff. But even then, Harvey Weinstein found a way to like fuck him over because when they released uh, the the Blu-ray with the director's cut on it, it's not in the, the right aspect ratio. Like it's one point eight five is to one instead of two three five, so it totally ruins all the compositions that um, that Harris Savides comes up with. Because like I'm just trying to imagine like how do they pan and scan the scene where where Mark Wahlberg is hiding in the in the hospital because the way that that's framed it's like one shot where you see his silhouette like in the um, off to the side of one of the frames and there's just something about the angle of how it's shot in the hospital when he's about to to kill that cop that's in the coma um, uh, that you know it just works in two three five and of course the rail yards as well like they're meant to be shot in scope like they're just these wide like never ending trains and rails you know. Absolutely. So, now, would this yeah. have been Charlize, one of Charlize Theron's first movies? Because I think Two Days in the Valley was, I was think it came out fall of 98. But if this originally was intended yeah. to be 98, it would have been, mm-hmm. at a bare minimum, yeah. one of the first movies that she shot. Right. I, I think she moved to America when she was like 18 or 19, learned English really quickly because she, she grew up speaking Afrikaans in South Africa. Yeah, right. And then suddenly she's this like sex kitten <laughs> acting in all these movies. Yeah. But man, she she, yeah. she popped quickly. Right, yeah. And I, I don't know. I think like her look too was like interchangeable because if you just like compare, I guess the movies that were coming around coming out around the same time, like I think Reindeer Games was also oh, no, around. I'm, the same I'm, I'm online, I'm seeing Two Days in the Valley technically is nineteen ninety six and she was also uncredited right. in Children of the Corn Three, Urban Harvest, which was one year <laughs> earlier. So yeah, that thing you okay. do yeah, that thing you do ninety six. So she had a couple movies under her under her belt, right. like Woody Allen Celebrity, Devil's Advocate. So, okay, so she wasn't Yeah, to- I remember her from Devil's Advocate. Yeah, she wasn't a total newbie before she yeah. uh, before she took on this role. Right. Um, but I like how she kind of changed her look um, for most of her roles. And this one, yeah, she looks completely different from anything she's done. Like it's, and maybe it was like leading towards like three years later with Monster and, you know, winning that Oscar, you know, like here she kind of has like the short black pixie cut, heavy like eyeshadow. Well, it's like the same haircut from Celebrity, but dyed black. Right. And yeah, so, that scene with Joaquin really caught me off guard. I mean, Joaquin starts flying off the rails as he realizes that he's right. going to be thrown under the bus sooner or later and he ends up killing the girl that he's in love with as they're, as they're fighting and arguing. So the movie has some scenes with some serious punch, but I think it um, it doesn't completely come together, but it's very watchable. It's got some great performances, and as you mentioned before, it's got a great contrast between the older generation and the young. And if you just like movies about New York City right. corruption and how quickly the mayor is basically willing to sweep everything under the rug and... Yeah. Throw this cop under the bus and act like his testimony is kind of dubious at best, yeah. and how he's been I known, do love how he's he known to be a little free with the nightstick, etc. So right. that side of New York, I thought was uh, very compelling yeah. and very authentic. I like how that it's just done in a casual, like backroom discussion too, like just yeah. before, like they're, they're going to face like the media and and the general yeah, public. They're going to have a like, giant press conference, 
And suddenly mm-hmm. it's yeah, the mayor, a few cops, and a few of the interested parties just cutting this deal. It's I guess if you're one of the beneficiaries, beneficiaries of you're like, all right, well, hell yeah, we're getting things done. But, <laughs> but it's definitely a sleazy backroom deal. Right. Absolutely. And yeah, you had mentioned also the ending is, is different. Um, uh, like because of, I guess the, the Miramax impositions and with the director's cut, that is the most noticeable thing is just how the end of the theatrical cut is like a kind of moralizing where it shows like that they don't get away with it. And like, you know, um, Mark Wahlberg testifies and there's like some sort of, I guess, redemption. Whereas the, the ending for the director's cut is more ambiguous because it just like shows you the final shots of of the yards and all the locations where so things So it's took less place. about breaking the code of silence and more about just kind of business right. as usual continuing. Yeah. And then I think that's more true to what actually happened. Yeah, like the yeah. last couple minutes of the theatrical cut doesn't feel true to the overall tone of the movie. So suddenly this kind of grim, dark and gritty flick kind of tries to tack on this wholesome, happy message. And yeah, it clashes with the overall themes of the flick. Right. I used to tell my kids, work first, play later. My son Joseph really took that to heart. You like what you do at the club very much. You are like a son to me. Love it. What's the matter? You want something? Touch me. You had to hit that spot. Of all the places, you gotta come to my place. That's where the drug deal has been seen. Nice friends you got there. No, Poppy's not my friend. What are we supposed to do? Compromise the whole thing? What, you want me to come into your place? Hey, 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 Sooner or later, either you're gonna be with us, or you're gonna be with the dealers. <laughs> it's just like a war out there. some products coming in. Maybe you could help us get it out there. The cops, they ain't no problem. The chief of police will be next. If I wanted to help you, what would I have to do? Take that away. It's one of Pops. You call Vadim's people and set it up. You won't see us, but we'll be following your every move. Don't be a hero. You're breathing heavy. You nervous? Wait, wait! Make your promise right now. I'm gonna protect you. I never meant to get you involved in all this. Baby, you could be killed. It's gonna be okay. Well, let's dive into We Own the Night because between the debacle on the yards with uh, with uh, Harvey Weinstein, there's a seven-year interim. I think this is his biggest know, right? break in his career. Yeah, and is. I'm looking at like, – it's not like he's got a bunch of like writing credits or producer credits in between those. It's just no. this big, giant seven-year gap where he really right. struggled to get things off the ground. But We Own the Night, very solid flick, very cool cast, and yet another New York flick. And once again, Joaquin Phoenix chewing the scenery. 
Right. And then um, this one intentionally is not in two, three, five aspect ratio. It's his only film that isn't that. And uh, I had to like dig really deep into it because like I couldn't find the reason. I was like, I needed to know why is this not in scope? You know, and I finally found it on the Kodak website. Like there's actually like um, an article about it. And um, this was his first film working with um, another Joaquin uh, cinematographer, Joaquin Baca Asai. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his last name right, but um, uh, he actually discovered the cinematographer from um, from seeing Roger Dodger, which is like really funny to me because Roger Dodger is like this like independent film that's mostly forgotten with Campbell Scott and, uh, and Jesse Eisenberg. And the way that this movie is shot is like from really far away, like across the street, like long lenses, and it's completely handheld, like shaky cam. And that's like the exact opposite of of James Gray. Like there's barely any handheld shots in James Green's movies and he's actually spoken out against it like he thinks like it's just the default like artsy style like he yeah, does like that. the Darden brothers um so I'm just surprised that he gravitated toward Baka Asai but I think it's it's more to do with I guess um how Baka Asai like shoots the streets like he's he's also like a very established like music video director um I mean two of my favorite music videos he uh, he uh, um he's the DP for not director um was uh uh, actual facts, which uh, features like Lord Finesse and um, uh, Grand Pooba. Like, it's all these like um, people from Digging in the Crates. Like, this is a shout out to Marcus, by the way. He would recognize these names and Scott. Um, and then uh, he also shot uh, Mark Romanek's uh, 99 Problems video for uh, Jay Z, which is just incredible black and white. Um, so, yeah, they this was their first collaboration together. So, they were, they were apparently like going over. James Gray's touch tones are like, you know, the film's from the 70s. So, you know, I, I guess we should have brought this up earlier too, like how he's he's known to be like a classical director. But yeah, I people, feel... People describe him quite, either negatively or positively as a classicist. Yeah, but I feel like he's probably more of a neoclassicist because his, his peers really are the directors from the 70s rather than, you know, um, like... The directors from the fifties. Yeah, like he would rather be a Sid, he'd rather be a Sid Lumet or someone like that, or a Francis Ford Coppola, yes, like like seventies exactly. era guy. Right. So they were saying that like their touchstones for for We Own the Night was the French Connection, and you know because of the car chase, and then also um, uh, the Godfather Part Two, which explains another trademark of his, which is the he loves having this kind of amber golden hue in his films, and it, it's it's featured strongly um, in this film. And also, as in those previous two movies, you, you got a lot of Russian culture because this movie, you basically have the Russian yes. mafia like in, involved in all sorts of nightclubs. But the boys right. in blue, Robert Duvall and Mark Wahlberg, are going to try and take down. I mean, this is basically what it, it's shot in 2007, but it takes place in the late 80s when yeah. cops were getting shot left and right, and they were really struggling in this uphill battle. And you have Mark Wahlberg's brother, played by Joaquin Phoenix, who's really caught in the middle, where he's profiting from his association with the underworld by working in all these nightclubs. But once his brother's been shot in the face, spoiler alert, and once they start coming <laughs> after his father, he really has no choice but to go through this remarkable transformation. And I, I, I really like the arc of Joaquin Phoenix's mm-hmm. character here where he goes from sleazy <laughs> nightclub guy getting in all right. David Mendez to being willing to wear a wire and perhaps help with the investigation to eventually yeah. just becoming like like a super cop. <laughs> and, yeah. and like the, his whole transformation <laughs> yeah. over the course of the movie is really incredible. Like Mark Wahlberg kind of yeah. begins and ends. His arc 
is basically him just getting smaller and kind of he's suffering from post-traumatic right, yeah. stress and freezing up. But Joaquin, his character keeps getting bigger and bigger. And also, I'm just a massive Robert Duvall fan. And I know Joaquin, who's can be a little bit of a dick on the set, if his character doesn't like a certain character, then as an actor, he'll behave in a kind of reprehensible fashion. And I know that he would talk a lot of shit with Robert Duvall to kind of get his emotions up to the level that they needed to be for certain adversarial scenes. But once again, I love seeing that contrast. And it works. Yeah, Yeah, between the old generation and the new. Like it's like in Anatomy of a Murder when you see like George C. Scott and Ben Gazzara going up against Jimmy Stewart, where you see that generational clash in style. You see that here. Robert Duvall, he's old school, but he totally holds his own. Yeah, and then you can also just see like he's revisiting a lot of like the motifs from his earlier films. So it's like, you know, the father who like kind of shuns one son and then the other one he's trying to like have him follow in in his um, own footsteps. And um, so you could easily imagine, you know, had, spoiler alert to like, uh, had uh, Edward Furlong's character survived Little Odessa, he could grow up to be Joaquin's character. 100%, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I just also want to say like the, the opening of the film is like one of my favorites. And I think this was the start of a trend of like uh, James Gray just starting with like an impressive opening for the film. And it, it, technically it starts with those stills of like, the actual like um, cops who were part of the we own the night like uh, that was their, um, their know, that was their phrase. yeah their slogan or their motto and like yeah it was like these group of cops who were like um, basically on high alert and looking out for each other uh, but then after that like photo montage like Heart of Glass comes in you know and oh, that's uh, awesome you're like fuck and, yeah drugs yeah, cocaine and, hot girls let's do this yeah. <laughs> Ava Mendes is on the couch, like writhing, and Looking it's like a so goddess. powerful. Yeah, right. And just like Joaquin Phoenix comes in, and just like it's such an incredible way to like set the tone for the film. And I, I, I was a little disappointed by the third act of the film where Joaquin Phoenix turned. I like it's weird because I like the 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 final like climactic sequence of the film, but what the scene with like the smoke and shrouded kind of yes, marshlands went yeah, there. That, that that's yeah, a really that, cool that, scene beautiful. where he goes in there hunting for this brutal killer, and right. you can't see anything. You've got you know you're surrounded. By, I don't know you call it shrubbery or whatever. I'm not good with like my marshlands like lingo. Tall grass. Yeah, it's tall grass. grass. <laughs> but it's surrounded yeah. in a giant circle of cops, and Joaquin goes in right. on his own to hunt this guy down. That's a yeah, really cool and sequence. Just, and as you mentioned yeah, before, the car chase. They were really struggling trying to figure out how do you match the car chase from French Connection. And they yeah. figured out, well, let's just show the entire car chase from the point of view of Joaquin Phoenix. And it is really visceral and immersive. You see yeah, it, it works. unfolding yeah. in real time from his point of view, and it makes yeah. it incredibly intense. Yeah, the, the set pieces in this film are just like, yeah, top notch. Like, that, that's the thing for me. Like, it doesn't quite hang together, but, you know, if you were to take like the set pieces in the film, because another moment that I really love, which was just like really high tension was the, the wire scene. Yeah. I mentioned that, that scene to Rob Cotto the other day and he was like, how the fuck did he survive that fall at the window? He would have been broken in half. <laughs> I didn't have, right. I, I didn't have a problem with that under the circumstances no. of watching it, but do you find that scene to be implausible? No, I, 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 I thought it was plausible. I mean, I think at that point, I, I guess that's why you mentioned he's like a super cop because he survived that fall. <laughs> yeah. But um, no, I, I, I think it was, I, I was just with it. Like that was the thing, like his, this was the start of his films, like really trying to, starting to cast a spell on me, even though, yeah, this didn't sit well with me with, uh, with Joaquin's like sudden gradual movement. And I wonder if that is like a compromise thing. Cause that, that is the question that comes into my mind 
with most of Gray's films is like what were the compromises that he had to do in order to I get mean, this technically movie. every movie, even under the best of circumstances, is a series yeah. of endless compromises from right. location to budget to casting choices yeah. to endings. I mean, every day you you start with this grand idea, this pure vision in your mind of what you think your movie is going to be, and David Cronenberg describes it how a movie quite literally pushes you around. He really enjoys the way a movie will push you around, and because it it ends up becoming something you never could have envisioned. It's very hard to be like Alfred Hitchcock and storyboard the whole thing and then just kind of put it into the yes. machine and spit out precisely what you want. Right. And, and so it's, I mean, yeah, like how adaptable are you as a filmmaker right. to these compromises that are being foisted upon you? For sure. But also I like how this movie's got a lot of common ground with Ad Astra. When you see um, the character of Robert Duvall, that Robert Duvall plays and he has a line in there, he says, um, you know, work now, play later. That's what right. Brad Pitt says. Tommy Lee Jones' character used to say to him, and then after it's like, all right, well, clearly, this this father figure or the like, the shadow of one's father looming over your own career is something that kind of haunts James Green a lot of way because it it keeps coming yeah. up in his movies. Yeah, he keeps coming back to it. I mean, almost every one you can look at it that way. You know, even the immigrant, even though it focuses more on on a feminine perspective, um, it's still somehow hanging over these characters. Um, and with this one in particular, too, it was just um, I, like within the I'm trying to look at it from the context of when it came out, like 2007 was is widely considered to be like a great movie year. So when this came out, like everybody was it was in a lot of top 10 lists. Um, but, yeah, I just really ultimately feel it, it, it falls a little short. You know, Fair enough. Uh, I, th- I, th- I, th- yeah, yeah. I think it's very enjoyable, very watchable, well with hunting down. But is it on the level of Carlito's Way or Prince of the City or anything like that? No. But it, it's damn good, in my opinion. Hi. You live here, right? Yeah. Well, my parents do. I'm staying with them. This is my son, Leonard. I know. Hi. Is that your bedroom in the back? I can see you from my apartment. Our parents wanted us to meet. Actually, I wanted to meet you. Hey, are you going to the city? Uh, yeah. Oh, great. You can keep me company. So Michelle tells me you guys are neighbors. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to keep an eye on her for me. How you doing? Your parents told me you'd be home. They said you wanted me to come over. This wasn't your idea for me to come over, was it? Some friends of mine. Why didn't you come with us? Uh, he says he's gonna stay with his wife. I want to take care of you. I feel like I understand you. I'm so lost, Leonard. What's wrong? You okay? Yeah, I'm just thinking about my friend of mine. I love you. Oh, God. You think if I got to know you that I wouldn't love you? But I do know you, and I love you even more. My daughter is crazy about you. She is my life.
so when I did my review for Ad Astra, the movie that most people recommended most wholeheartedly was Two Lovers. They kept bringing it up. It seems like this definitely is in the mix as the a lot of people's favorite movie by James Gray. And I know that it basically was made as like a challenge by Gwyneth Paltrow, who accused him of being too masculine in his, uh, in his topics for his other movies. And as I was watching this two days ago, I spent most of it just screaming, like, oh my God, these girls are so fucking hot. Like, you just just going totally berserk. <laughs> but it is yeah. quite different from what's preceded. It's very New York. Yes. But it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a very clear pivot into more mature territory. So give us your, your pitch on Two Lovers. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. Like, I will say I started with uh, We Own the Night in terms of watching James Gray's films. Um, and then after seeing We Own the Night, I was just like, yeah, I'm good. I don't need to see other films. And this is the shortest gap between two films. Like, it's a year, basically, between the two. And uh, somehow, I guess, like seeing it on Amazon Prime, I, I was like, oh, it's here. Like one afternoon, I just put it on. And yeah, I was blown away. Like that opening of um, Joaquin Phoenix, like walking in slow motion, dragging the dry cleaning that he's supposed to deliver. And that it, does, it has like this droning score to it. And I, I don't think we've even mentioned that up to this point. Like a lot of his scores tend to be kind of melodramatic and like highly orchestral. And that was like different for this film. And then when he jumps into water, like I was just in, I was hooked by it. Like from the very beginning, like it really just cast a spell on me and just the way it shot, like clearly he's, you know, really in sync now with Joaquin Baca, Asai, the guy who shot um, We Own the Night. So they're just working completely in sync with each other. And I just love that it's like, okay, let's take away the, the funnel of, of crime films. And like, let's just focus on the things that I was drawn to with those early films was just like, yeah, those peripheral details of like what it is like to just live a life. And, and also what are the, the Ukrainian and Russian culture, once again, uh, yes. it's, it's just as vivid yeah. as in Little Odessa. It just no longer yeah. has hitmen walking around blowing each other's brains out and that sort of thing. It's <laughs> right. just yeah. about like real life, like working at a dry cleaners and falling in love and mm. which, which, I mean, this is kind of the immortal question. I, I, I actually would be really interested to hear what girls think of this movie because for guys, I feel like, this movie almost kind of spoils us because it gives it that that alt that perfect ultimate compare and contrast. Do you want the nurturer, the the maternal influence, the the, the girl who's going to make you feel good, who gets along with your family, who's going to build you an incredible family, who just wants to take care of you, or do you want the crazy dysfunctional sex kitten who's full of problems and drama, but you can't take your eyes off of her? And I, I find both. Yeah. Both, I mean, Vanessa was it Vanessa Shaw who plays the yeah, Vanessa Shaw. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's just strikingly beautiful in this. I spent actually more of my time screaming in agony, reacting to her instead of, uh, instead of Gwyneth. But, uh, yeah. but guys are always attracted. Like, do you want the mother or the whore? Or can you find that sublime hybrid that combines right. the two? And you just see him just ripping himself to pieces, trying to wrestle with this eternal choice. Yeah. And I love how it's portrayed in the movie because um, obviously he's also coming from a mental health perspective. Like he's recovering from, from trauma of like being jilted by a fiance, but also because there is like the, um, they both uh, have the gene for Tay-Sachs disease. So they actually can't have kids together. So that really messed him up. And he's kind of like moved back into home. But the, the amazing thing about Joaquin's performance in this, and you know, this is my favorite performance by him still. Really? Is in in that, any movie he's ever appeared. Yeah. Yeah, it is because of just how he, 
he's able to toe the line between like being damaged but also like being able to carry himself like an early scene you see where i was just like oh man this is just perfect like he he's making the seamstress laugh at the in the dry cleaners like he's doing like this silent comedy routine that's just like oh so he is confident and then you see him later on like he can dance he can oh throw the dance floor is incredible because you see like actual <laughs> legit like breakdancers doing their thing and right. you never want to take the floor after like actual breakdancers have finished their bit. But he hops out there and he does like the white boy version of like the worm and he's got like the robot. He's got a few little you know, everybody knows like one or few moves they can whip out right. when they're hammered to show off, but it makes the girls laugh and yeah, they're he's doing very well, but he but he just doesn't realize that Gwyneth Paltrow, she's got her own substance abuse issues and she's got right. a lot of internal drama and she's like it's that classic scenario where he's in love with her but she's in love with a married man and she's basically using Joaquin as like, she's leaning on him for emotional support so that she, she can like wake him up at six in the morning and say, all right, so what, what did you think? Like, do you think he's going to leave his wife for me? I mean, complete total batshit crazy drama, but some guys really feed off that drama. They love that drama and they, they can't help like a moth to flame. They get drawn in by all that insanity. Yeah. And it's crazy now. I mean, given like how much praise this movie has and like, you know, People who are in the know, they're like, this is the James Gray movie to, like, watch. And, like, you know, um, yeah, I'll say it now. Like, I think this is his masterpiece. Like, I just really do feel he reached, like, an entirely new level. But now, like, what, 10 years later after this film has come out, like, considering, like, I guess the zeitgeist now, I think Joaquin's character is even more relevant than all, like, the, the, the crazy accusations for Joker like it would actually more apply to this in terms of like, oh, this guy's like not necessarily an incel, but he's definitely kind of using their terms like cucked in a way. Like for um, to like uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, like he he's willing to like give up everything for her and like you know cancel his plans just so he can be with her. Uh, and even though she's not really reciprocating, well, you, you know? can tell that he's feels paralyzed by. Like he there's a he has an opportunity where the the parents of the girl that he likes but is not in love with and his parents get along and they're gonna go into business together like it, it's all laid out he marries Vanessa and they they can just settle down and he will work in this business for the rest of his life but maybe that's just it's too complete it's too wholesome right. it's too easy it's maybe perhaps too small because he wants to be a photographer and so he's a, he's attracted to the unpredictable nature of this. Kind of, uh, <laughs> kind of crazy girl. And so I, right. I, I totally get it because many guys at a young age will run in terror from the, that domesticity and so on and so forth. They just oh, find, they yeah. find it absolutely, they'll, they'll absolutely choke on it. But it's just as an outsider looking in, you just start want to like, you just want to shake them. Like, don't you realize like mm-hmm. it's, it's perfectly teed up for you. Just right. go with Vanessa. And he just, he just, he just can't do it. Yeah. And I think that's an important point to bring up too is like, your perspective with age, like how you look at that situation. Like I, I do yeah, feel like, like if I saw this at 26 versus young. 43, I'm sure I would look at it in mm-hmm. an entirely different light. Yeah. You would be going for Gwyneth. Yeah. yeah the girl who's showing her, <laughs> like who's standing in the window showing your titties, like, you know, in the night while talking on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, that, that's yeah, a hot and, scene. Right. And uh, it's just something about like, you know, wanting something you can't have and not really thinking that far long term into the future and and that is brought up and i I think actually another interesting thing about the variation on a theme with his with compared to his other movies is here you have two father figures not just one so you have vanessa shaw's father and um 
and obviously um, uh, Joaquin's character's father, who's named Leo, by the way, um, or Leonard. And it's funny how that's also Mark Wahlberg's character's name in um, in the yards. So um, he uh, the, the two father figures, like one of them is is a little more passive, uh, which is uh, uh, Leonard's father. Um, he's he's more content to just like falling asleep in the TV, watching Benny Hill, like that kind of stuff. He's he's not like a very like uh, overbearing father, but the Vanessa Shaw's father is like very strict. And that that whole scene, I love that scene where they they have to sit down at his dry cleaner's office, and he's like. I'm going to be direct with you. Like, can I ask you this question? Are you a fuck up? You know, and like, he's just talking about like how important, you know, his daughter's happiness is. And that's what I love about this. It's not that cut and dry. I feel like in terms of choosing between the two girls, because there are some downsides to, to picking Vanessa Shaw because you pick her. Now you have to deal with his father. And he's like, I want you to yeah. like, he's going to be in your business every day, the rest of your life. And there's this whole thing about him having this artistic aspiration of being a photographer. And I, from my perspective, I see that as like, that's the end of your dream. You're taking oh, yeah, over, over the fact. Yeah. If, he, yeah. if he locks it down, then his creative life is over without a doubt. Right. And uh, I should also Which mention- is always like, like the fear and anxiety of so many creative people, whether they want to be a writer or a filmmaker or whatever, think, oh, family and children means, compromise means getting a real job, which means all my aspirations are, I mean, Johann Sebastian Bach had like, 70 kids so obviously you can have have, have both yeah. but it does make it obviously more challenging because it well, requires time and emotional energy oh absolutely yeah um and the whole thing too what i love i guess because this feels like the most personal because he takes away that genre if you want it could be like a it's not quite a rom-com but like that would be the closest no thing, it's but definitely not, not a rom-com not, it's not yeah, a, like, it's too bleak yeah. too dark too cold no, yeah, yeah. But, um, well, what do you yeah, like, this is how Joaquin's last movie that he made before right. his scam about retiring from acting, and, growing a beard, it, going crazy, and doing that documentary, I'm Still Here. Right, and it, it, there's a foreshadowing in the film itself because, you know, when they're taking that car ride to, like, the meatpacking district to go to that nightclub, um, he he's rapping. Like, he raps, like, at the beginning, and then, you know, it's kind of like, oh, and uh, James Gray actually mentions that. Uh, by the way, too, this is another amazing thing with James Gray. It's like his his DVD commentaries are fantastic. Like they're worth checking out. Like even um, I think on the yards, like he does it with Steven Soderbergh, which oh, is cool. yeah, it's perfect. Uh, but for this one, he was saying like, yeah, I had no idea that 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 was the direction that he was was heading. <laughs> that he was gonna go I mean, into this. Like I'm still here. Like, I find fascinating. Even if you know it's a joke, it's still an interesting experiment that an actor with so much promise and so much ability right. would roll the dice with career self destruction, doing this movie that wasn't going to get widely seen. So it's one of the things where you know the self destruction is going to get widely covered, but will the fact that it was a joke get equal coverage like that's the risk he run because i think there are a lot of people out there who still think that he actually did like grow a beard and retire from acting and just went crazy for a while like I, they didn't never hear that it was all just this thing they cooked up yeah exactly and i mean the whole thing with that is just i feel the controversy with that and like the direction that james gray took after this movie too like he got embroiled in like a cat in the can film festival controversy uh, did you hear about that? I did not. Yeah, lay it on me. Oh, okay, so um, 2009, um, after Two Lovers, he he was part of the Cannes Film Festival jury, and the president was Isabel Huppert, and he like notoriously butted heads with her. And the whole thing was he was actually a big fan of hers, and 
Uh, it's sad. She's fucking like, Isabelle Huppert. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like yeah, that he may that we'll never see like a James Gray Isabelle Huppert collaboration because of this. Like it was just so acrimonious. Like he was accusing her of kind of being a dictator, and the whole thing was you know that year um, the the palm went to uh, White Ribbon, and he kind of accused her of being biased because she had worked with Michael Haneke before. What, the, what was James Gray in favor of as opposed to White Ribbon? Well, um, I'm hearing like varying kind of um, uh, uh, sources, but the the one that kind of keeps popping up is Antichrist. Like, oh he was, wow! Yeah, yeah well, people talk about 2007 being a good year. That's a good year too. If Antichrist and White Ribbon are competing, woof. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mean, I, I so, like I like both movies quite a bit. I I don't know whose side I would have been on. <laughs> right. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, I, I lean more towards um, uh, Antichrist, though. Like, I would have, I would have given it to that. <laughs> you, you, just... you need that 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 blood come coming out of Willem Dafoe. Yes, to make your life oh, complete. <laughs> or like sc- screwing that weight to his like leg. Dude, yeah. <laughs> no, I love Antichrist. Antichrist is <laughs> it's so emotionally overwhelming that it's hard to even. The first time I watched it, like in the first five minutes, I was just thinking to myself. Can I even watch this? Like this is rough. Like it's just it's so raw. Yeah, and, and and it just goes to show too with James Gray that I like that his taste isn't necessarily like in alignment with his own style. You know, yeah. that he's willing to like go out. Your of, aesthetic as a consumer can be different from yeah. your aesthetic as a storyteller, without a doubt. Yeah, because I mean this is the other thing that I mean, recent years, like uh he's I think he's gonna be like persona non grata in terms of like being part of a jury because another controversial statement he made was that um he doesn't feel like filmmakers are good judges of movies you know (laughs) which it's true and but that's totally fair i mean martin scorsese in his documentary personal journey through american filmmaking with martin scorsese talks about how he really can't even discuss like the 80s and he he mentions one at the time relatively contemporary movie in the entire documentary unforgiven but once you start working and you're active it's really not your job to be the judge of right. your peers. Granted, that's what the Academy is all about, is judging your peers. <laughs> but as a right. as an historian, it's really, I feel like, up to the film enthusiasts at that point to kind of write the history books and let the filmmakers focus on just doing the best movies they possibly can. Unless you are someone like Tarantino who still enjoys watching movies, but you get the sense yeah. that when he watches movies, it's mostly 50s and 60s and 70s yeah. that concerns him. It's not like he's rushing out to see right. every new release in 2019. That's just, yeah. it's not his job it, anymore. Yeah, it's just being jaded by the process and also like knowing how things are put together. Like it's hard to really be objective. And I mean, um, uh, he James Gray himself qualified that statement by saying that his problem with like what he hears from other filmmakers, like, passing judgment on other movies is that they would rather do something different, you know? And he, yeah, he yeah. says, well, like, oh, I wouldn't have made those same know, choices. Yeah. Right. And it's not your movie. It's yeah. like, you know, they're you, supposed to judge the yeah. movie on what it's trying to accomplish, not right. on how you would have done it differently. It's like, I got recently saw the Noah Baumbach movie at the New York film festival marriage story. And it wasn't yeah. for me, but given what it is trying to accomplish, I think there are people who will enjoy it, but like it but it's hard it's what's more important your own personal feelings or kind of being objective whatever the hell that means but with two right. lovers i know that two lovers impress enough people that it's what made robert pattinson hunt down james Gray and said that he was down yes. to work with him which is how they ended up exactly. collaborating a few years yeah. later so i think uh, I a lot know. of people out there yeah they rank 
two lovers very highly in his film. Yeah, I, I do too. I mean, there's just so many things I could even like just bring up. I mean, there, I'll just bring up a couple of details. I think I it's really... the most emotionally gripping of his movies. Like in mm-hmm. the last 30 minutes Absolutely. when he's getting ready, like when he's looking up tickets to San Francisco and basically about to throw his life down the toilet, I was kind of pacing around my apartment like, oh my God, this guy's going to fuck up everything. <laughs> and... Yeah. If you were to criticize some of his other movies, especially some of his more recent movies, you might criticize them for being a little emotionally cool. Like, you know, that, some of say that's very like Christopher Nolan and Kubrickian, et cetera. But there is a, cool, a coldness to some of his later movies. Two Lovers is very raw and immediate and right up in your face. Right. Yeah. And that, that was a surprising thing to me because, I mean, if you're familiar with James Gray, like as a person and like what how he he comes across like in interviews, he is also that like he seems like he's he's holding back. He's not very emotional, but, um, he, he confesses that he is actually like more like the Joaquin character in terms of like having anxiety. And it, it may have something to do with like being growing up like Ukrainian Jew as well. Like the, the those aspects. Is that why Mikhail's so fucked up and so crazy? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, I see that too. I'm like, Oh shit. Yeah. That's why this movie also probably resonates with him. And I mean, that is, is, this, is, this, is this a Mikhail favorite? Uh, I think so, yeah. Um, gotcha. I mean, I don't want to speak for him, but like uh, to me, well, it, for me as well, it's like it's in my top 20 movies of all time. Like it's something that I can just come back to time and again and, and it still feels fresh to me. Like uh, so many moments, like the use of Henry Mancini's like Lujan, which I first heard in the Big Lebowski soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The way it's here when they, they go for the, you know, he goes to the restaurant with the Brandy Alexander's and another like weird kind of foreshadowing is like how opera figures into the film, like um, you know with uh, part of their culture, Gwyneth. So. right? But now, like you know, James Gray's next project is actually going to be an opera that he's playing at the the LA Philharmonic uh, oh, next year. And we have a little opera yeah. in Lost City of Zed as well. You get that? I mean, it's like straight out of Fitzcarraldo, right. an opera in the middle of the yeah. of the rubber jungle. Right. Exactly. So it, it, it's kind of looming large. I, I, I am interested to see uh, Marriage of Figaro next year. I may I may go catch it um, because yeah, I, I want to see what James Gray does with an opera. You know. Um, and yeah, it's just the the way that the movie handles like ambivalence and like uh, nuances. There's so many things going on in the film. Like I even just love um, Isabel um, Isabella Rossellini's like character and how she handles the situation when she begins to understand what's going on. Like that scene you know, when they meet in the staircase where he's like he calls him out. It's like, are you leaving? It's like so powerful. Like that just hits me every time because you can sense that she's just like so understanding of his situation but she's she's sad of it as well you know and couldn't be happier you know that smile that he has as he's leaving (laughs) heading towards this like tragic ending well you know uh ending with gwyneth at least yeah but but he he lucked out if they'd gone to san francisco together it would have been catastrophic <laughs> she she would have ditched them the first chance right. she got i mean she is um I, yeah not not exactly someone you want to lean upon or rely upon right. and yeah i just love that it's also like um i don't know if you've ever read like robert mckee's story i have not uh, yeah so um he talks about like different structures in terms of plotting and um he has like his his perfect example of something that like carries like classical and like a minimal plot and um, anti-plot all in one and he considers it to be Barton Fink and in Barton Fink the ending is like it's both closed and it's like open at the same time and I love when movies are able to do that and with this film it's perfect because as we've discussed like you know it's 
it's a sure thing that you know he's gonna be with with um with like, Vanessa with Shaw, but yeah. like what what what's gonna happen to him in terms of like his mental well being? Is she gonna be able to like take care of him and be able to handle all of these things? Because you know she says that like directly to him. Like that's what I love too. It's like the the honesty of like the feelings that the characters bring out in the film is just beautiful. So when she says like I want to take care of you. You know, it's like, well, you're saying that right now because it's just the beginning of things. And then you can also sense his ambivalence. But, you know, what What about, yeah, when, like, he's actually accepted you now and, like, you're going to be together. Like, will you be turned off by that? And, like, will you start, like, criticizing him for, you know, who he is and all of those things? So I love that there is that ambiguousness with that ending. And, of course, like, the score is just perfect. It's now, just, how faithful like, an adaptation is this of Dostoevsky's White Knights, which he wrote in 1848? I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, it, it is like a beautiful text. Uh, it's one of my favorite novellas, um, and it's been adapted before, obviously. Like um, the one I haven't seen, which I, I wanted to like watch in preparation for this, but I didn't have time. Was um, um, uh, Lu- Lucino Visconti's version, which was actually called White Knights, but the other more famous adaptation of it is um, uh, Robert Bresson's Four Nights of a Dreamer, which is also a favorite movie of mine, but they're, they're very different. Uh, uh, Bresson's is closer to um, uh, White Knights because the nights in, in question, that's really it. Like it all takes place over four nights and he, he keeps meeting the girl who's Gwyneth Paltrow's character on this bridge. And he doesn't have like the backup, like the Vanessa Shore, Shaw, uh, Shaw character is, um, an invention for the movie so it's a very loose adaptation like they just use that as kind of the because the um, the conflict really is actually more the Gwyneth Paltrow character choosing between this man who already has a husband who might not leave his wife and this guy who's you know kind of a drifter and is is not particularly stable and like you know knowing that one might be a surer thing than the other and like ultimately picking the the guy um the 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 one who isn't available because um he he agrees to leave um her his family for her you know so those are the he's backed into a corner and realizes that she's moving to san francisco but he's almost like why buy the cow if you can get the milk for free like he's been totally fine with just boning her on the side until he realizes he's about to lose her and so well yeah and also she mentions that um the other thing that shifted him was um knowing that she had a miscarriage yeah you know and like how that can affect you because it's like man you had my baby and um i had no idea like that you know it's like a part of you was was with her and um yeah that's what i like it's just like all the all the moral conundrums in the film and the conflicts are not that cut and dry like there's just all these other factors like everything has like a consequence whichever decision you make you know and i I think the the film captures that perfectly gotcha beautiful well let's move on to the immigrant which apparently came about because uh, Marion Cotillard and James Gray got in like a like a trash talking competition over dinner one night. And she started throwing food at him, kind of getting pissed off. But they had some disagreement about an actor, and he suddenly decided that he was obsessed with her, and he started to identify with her as like like a face as mysterious and beautiful as the actress in Passion of Joan of Arc, and he really wanted to build a vehicle around her. And so this is the right. one female centric female star yeah. of his career. I mean, obviously two lovers has two strong female leads, but it is the Joaquin Phoenix story. So the yeah, immigrant it's his perspective. I have to admit of all of his seven movies that I've seen, well, all of his, all of his seven movies, this is my, I find it 
the least gripping emotionally, and I find it maybe a little slacker. But mm-hmm. uh, I've heard also that James Gray regards it as the best movie that he's ever made. Yeah, it's his favorite film. That so he's ever made. where does Carlo stand on the internet? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I it took me a while to to get around to watching. It. Actually, I'll, I'll I'll fully admit I only watched it finally because we were doing this episode. Like it was always like my James Gray like blind spot. Like I don't know. I mean, I I, I also just feel um, I have kind of a thing against um a bias against like period costume movies like that's just not my thing like it's not well, my technically like uh we in the night is a period costume movie it's like it know. is but 80s is fine but it's just like when they go to like that that period of like 1800s and beyond like when you see people like wearing like corsets or things like that yeah, 1921 manhattan ellis island yeah right well but that that, that's a funny thing because I do like the 20s and like obviously the the touchstone there is you know Godfather Part 2 and there's even shots in the film that recall it especially like when they do like the wide street shots so I I had avoided it for the longest time and then when I finally got to watch it I was like oh yeah this is actually like pretty solid like you know I, I don't I don't think it, it's uh, one of his better films but I, I certainly appreciated that again he's changing you know his approach and that's why I I do credit to lovers for that. Like just there's this whole shift that happens where um, he realizes, yeah, I don't need to do crime films anymore. Tough talk in New York flicks every single time. (laughs) And and yeah, the other incredible thing is just um, that I love that this pattern of like kind of, he doesn't set out, uh, as much as like it takes him so long to make one movie from another, he doesn't set out like what the next film will be. It's kind of like happenstance that it's like, oh, I met Gwyneth Paltrow and she told me that I only make movies about guys with guns. So, okay, I'm going to make two lovers. Or with this one, actually, uh, like the fight with Marianne Cotillard was like the end of it. But I think it came even before that, which was basically um, uh, her life partner, uh, Guillaume uh, Canet, uh, was like, making this film called Bloodwork, He was directing it and he got James Gray to co-write um, the script with him. And that's how he first learned of Myron Cotillard. And then like, I think it was also James Gray's wife um, who brought it up and saying, like he had never seen a film with her. And, and she's he, been acting since the mid nineties. I mean, she's been, right, she's, like, yeah. she's in like our mid forties now. She's, she's done a ton of stuff. Right. Exactly. And he had never seen a film with him. He never you saw know, Inception. She, <laughs> no, or he never saw, um, uh, what was that? Uh, I think he was, uh, um, Mavion Rose, the Edith PF movie either, mm. but his wife was telling him like, yeah, she's really famous. And like, you know, this really well-respected actress. And then, yeah, it, it just grew from there. And I guess another thing that I should point out, like a, a running thing with, with James Gray is that his films, uh, yeah, I like Two Lovers was inspired by Dostoevsky's novella, but the other films themselves feel like they're drawn from like some literary source. Like there's just a weight to them, you know. When I first, you know, heard the plot of this, I was like, oh, is this based like on a novel? Or you know, I, I had no idea that it, um, it was an original story by him. Because again, tying back to the personal, it's actually um, based on the story of how his his grandparents met. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, yeah, but it's beautifully shot. Um, he collaborates with um, Darius Konji this time around, and they yeah they've collaborated a couple more times. And um, he was te- he was saying like in a comment too because one of the things that he used to do with all his films was he would paint frames. You know, instead of storyboarding, he would actually paint a frame. 
and he he stopped with this film like he was just like uh yeah i don't want to do it anymore like how do you how do you like show a painting to darius conchi and say like this is how i want it to look but more importantly the thing that i love that like resonates with me uh because i i feel the same way is that you know you don't want to completely envision what you want and then like have that just be a direct translation but you want your vision to evolve and and change and that's why he stopped doing it he was just like yeah well i don't want what's in my head to be what's on screen like i want to have evolved from that and you know you see it in this film so gotcha. well this is yet another movie where he had trouble with miramax where it got postponed by a year and a, a much diminished uh, kind of release pattern. I think it only played in about 150 theaters. It played, it did decent business on like a per theater average, but it was one of those things where this is kind of the story of his career where you would think these right. conversations would be had before he starts shooting. Like, it's in the script. Like, you know, the right. movie is going to get made. Yeah. Why wait until the thing's shot? Like, well, we right. kind of have some reservations about the ending. Like, yeah, the time to have that conversation is when it's words on paper, and it's very inexpensive right. to, to change yeah. or not finance. And, but it seems like he always bumps into this issue where his movies are a little right. too long and have an ending that the studio finds unsatisfying. Yeah, which is strange to me because you never hear of how much like his work changes that much. Like it's not like he's he's doing like a one eighty on the ending. Like it was suddenly changed. Like it 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 would have been what was in the page, and I don't know whether it's him. Or it's also just the worst kind of luck because it kind of happened too with Ad Astra. But I, I feel like he failed upwards with Ad Astra. But then he's not really doing himself any service by um, making comments in public about it as well. You know, I mean, th yeah, you, this you will make a lot of enemies, producers and execs who will very discreetly and very quietly just vow not to work with you anymore. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I do appreciate that he is open about it, but like his films have to be made on a certain scale. You know, and that involves him having to deal with these people. I mean, he could make movies you know? like Two Lovers the rest of his life, but now yeah. that he's entering into this grand sci-fi slash adventure movie stage, it's like, yeah, it helps if you play the game. Christopher Nolan, I'm sure, plays the game to a degree. You never see him say, yeah. oh, well, Warner Brothers totally fucked my last movie. Like, he doesn't, he <laughs> yeah, doesn't, he doesn't do that. Even though, yeah, you get that sense. And, and I don't really know, like, um, I guess when all is said and done, whether there will be like director's cuts of some of these films uh, other than two lovers because the two lovers feels like it's just right yeah but like e even with with the immigrant is it possible that there is like an alternate cut of it that we it's don't also know possible that i don't even give a shit enough to watch the director's cut of the immigrant so like <laughs> right. i like i like his movies but that's the one that gripped, yeah. gripped me the least yeah i i think also what um what it brings to the forefront for me that is like i guess my issue with james gray is that he's always towing the line with melodrama and with this he gets pretty close like it's like the you know the poor woman who's like going through these experiences that are just like that makes you really like feel bad for her it's like an early um, 20s mary pickford film or something right um so and i i understand like the you know his connection with just seeing how um, you know, Marion Cotillard could be his Falconetti from from Trial of Joan of Arc, um, and uh, like yeah, our passion of Joan of Arc. I'm sorry, but um, but yeah, at the same time, like I felt like how much suffering can this woman really take? Also, this is a possibility that maybe writing parts for women is not necessarily playing to his strengths as a storyteller. Some writers just are really good at writing from a certain point of view, and you don't necessarily have to be able to 
put yourself in the body and the mind of every single person out there. Like maybe he's at his strongest when he's writing these kind of lone characters. <laughs> I mean, especially in Ad Astra right. and Lost City of Z, he really there's a certain type of persona that he seems to be attracted to as a storyteller. So sometimes I feel like it's better not to run away from your strengths, but play yeah, your strengths. Like Howard like, Hawks from the thirties through like the early sixties kept making movies about the same kind of people over and over and over again. And it maybe it limited him in terms of his subject matter, but God damn it. He made some really good movies along the way. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, I, I do feel that's more his lane and like, I, I don't know whether it has to do with, um, the criticisms that are leveled against him that he feels the need, even though like we'll see in Ad Astra. Well, if a beautiful actress gets in your face and it's like challenges yeah. you, then it's hard not yeah. to be like if Gwyneth Paltrow right. is giving you that kind of challenge or if Marion Cotillard is giving you that kind of challenge, it's hard not to want to see like, do you have some additional dimensions in your persona that you have yet to explore, et cetera. Right. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, it's it's an okay film. Like it has some moments in it. I do like also. I should mention I do like Gen- Jeremy Renner's performance in the film. Oh, he's good without a doubt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I was really affected by that scene. And again, I like that. There's things that recur with James Gray that really makes him like an auteur, right? Is um the way Joaquin Phoenix like stabs him is very similar to the way Joaquin Phoenix stabs like the station master at, in the yards, you yep. know, there's like echo deliberate echoes to it because when you first see that scene, it's so shocking because it's like, who got hurt here? Yeah. What happens? Like, yeah. Yeah. And Jeremy and Renner it, plays it beautifully. Yeah, he does. And I, I like how he toes the line between like charming like sociopath and you know, it's charming and being a sociopath. Like he does that very well, I think. So, um, yeah. Uh, but other than that, I think, uh, yeah, th- it's definitely not one of my favorite James Gray's. Totally fair. To dream, to seek the unknown, to look for what is beautiful is its own reward. A man's reach should exceed his grasp. Or what's a heaven for? You are the explorer? Give me a hand. I wish to find a lost city. What you seek is far greater than you ever imagined. It is your destiny. I'll not know you when you return. I know this is a sacrifice for all of us. The environment's brutally difficult. The journey may well mean your life, but you could reclaim your family name. Ain't nobody comes back from up there. But we have never let fear determine our future. What did you hope to achieve out here? If we may find a hidden civilization, where one was considered impossible to exist. We may well write a whole new chapter in history. I call it Zed. It is there. And we must find it. Well, now we are in the modern part of James Gray's career, his epic 
part of his career, his Coppola slash lean period where he's become this grand adventurer filmmaker exploring dangerous new frontiers. And really, you can tell ambition is upon him. I guess he's at a certain point in his life where he realizes if I'm going to become a legend, I need to fucking go for it. Like now, right. now, and now is the time to make my big statement. And I think he's been largely successful, but not completely successful. And I know the law, I, I don't know why the Brits do this, but they pronounce ZZ. I'm just, for the sake of simplicity, I'm going to call the movie The Lost City of Zed because that's what they call it in the movie. Yeah, over yeah I call it Zed too. Yeah. But The I, Lost City of Zed has a lot of very vocal, persuasive defenders, including Brett Easton Ellis, the host of my favorite film podcast, who made a very compelling case in defense of it. I've seen it twice now, and I think it's got some really remarkable things to it. But it feels, if you were to compare it to The Bridge on the River Kwai and Lawrence of Arabia, it just feels slacker than those movies. And I feel like if you want to be the next David Lean... There's a, a tightness. There's an economy of storytelling, even when he's doing Lawrence of Arabia, that I think is missing from Lost City of Z or Zed. Or maybe mm. it just boils down to the fact that I have a hard time listening to Charlie Hunnam talk for like two and a half straight hours. <laughs> he's, I like him quite a bit in movies. Yeah. But it, there, he has a certain, I don't know, uh, kind of predictable tenor to the way he expresses himself that after like two hours, I'm just like, Please stop talking. Like, let Robert Pattinson talk. Like, let anybody talk. I'm just, yeah. I get tired of his voice after a while, so that might also hold it. Because I know originally it's going to be uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, who had to back out of the last minute for some reason. But, really? where, where, yeah. where do you stand on Lost City of Zed? Because the movie did very – I think it grossed $19 million worldwide on a budget of $30 million. That is not a yeah. successful venture. You need that movie to do 60-plus before the studio right. can even pretend like they broke even. Yeah, I mean, not to jump forward or anything, but like I was already aware of James Gray um, at this time, and I missed it in the movie theater. And so, like, technically, actually, the first James Gray movie I saw in the movie theater was Ad Astra. Gotcha. <laughs> that was the first one because, um, yeah, I, I caught everything else like on DVD, like much later on. But um, uh, the whole thing with it was just I, I had intended to see it because I had heard about it, and again. His, like I like how James Gray's like path is like okay let I encounter somebody and they'll kind of inspire it. So the whole story behind this is actually that Brad Pitt brought it to him in order for Brad Pitt to do the project. And I love his Brad Pitt impression too. If you ever hear it, like I think it's I'm on not, the Directors yeah. Guild podcast where um he actually um discusses it with Matt Reeves, who funnily enough is now going to direct um Rob Pattinson in Batman. Um, but Matt Reeves also co-wrote The Yards. I should bring that up. Um, uh, I loved it. I mean, that was the whole thing with it. I, I was pleasantly surprised by it, but I don't come from that perspective of classicist like, narrative. Uh, uh, like, I'm not really a big fan of David Lean. Or, um, How dare uh, you? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm blasphemous. But yeah, it's just not my cup of tea. But I what like about how about smaller he, movies like Brief Encounter and things like that? I have yet to see Brief Encounter, but I do want to see it. Yeah, Brief yeah. Encounter. If you don't like his big his big canvas, Brief Encounter yeah. is very intimate and small. So it's his two lovers, basically. Yeah, hundred percent. It was perfect okay, comparison. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely check it out. Um, but yeah, so I, I don't come from that perspective. I came from it as like new James Gray, and I was excited because it's like wow, it's 
it's travel. And then, you know, his comment about never being like west of the East River, he's going to the Amazon to shoot it. And, you know, he talks about like a couple how of told him not to go. He wrote him a letter asking uh, for advice on how to shoot in the jungle. And a couple of just wrote him a two word response don't go. <laughs> Which was, but, but, you know, probably good advice. I mean, once you get into the jungle, it fucking you know. sucks. Like he said, like his 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 computer stopped working like on day one. It's just like totally yeah, infested with like mildew. So yeah. And luckily, since they were shooting on film, that actually still worked pretty well. But they were having to do this right. elaborate system of getting the film back to England to be developed and transferred <laughs> and stored yeah. and that sort of thing. I mean, it's just you're you're inviting so much hell into your life. And apparently, Robert Pattinson and Charlie Dunham were is it wait, Charlie Hunnam? Yeah, they just yeah. they just embraced it. Like we're gonna be uncomfortable and sticky and covered in bug bites for the next few weeks, few months, etc. But they said there were poisonous frogs everywhere that if you touched them, they would kill you. There were snakes right. coming out of the tree, biting crew members. Like they were shooting and they, like even the locals were saying, well, if you stay on the trail, you're fine. But if, as soon as right. you start hacking away at branches, the jungle is going to start fighting back, which is precisely what they're doing in the movie because the movie about explorers hacking their way <laughs> into the jungle. Right, and so, it, it basically performed the movie. Like, you know, it's, it's almost similar, like the, the, the parallels between Herzog of like, you know, Fitzcarraldo and, and Aguirre where like the shoots are just as grueling as what the characters in absolutely. the movie themselves. And you have um, to be a psycho like Herzog to invite that into your life. <laughs> right, and I think he he had gotten to a point now where it was like, yeah, okay, I'm ready to like leave my comfort zone and go off to another country. And I mean, I, I, I just loved it. And I mean, the whole thing too is I do have um, my reservations against uh, Charlie Hunnam as well. Um, I, I remember even like, just, like seeing him in this like canceled Judd Apatow show that I actually really love called Undeclared. Oh, he's great. He's like, really good. Yeah. Yeah. But his accent is dodgy. It's like, it, it's like a British guy who like, um, or an American who's like, trying to speak a British accent. It's just well, he's so from Australia, weird. isn't he? It, I thought he was British. Hang on, let me let me check, because I, I honestly do not know, but I thought I, he was Australian. I'm going to no, look I, him up right now. I, boom, I boom, 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 boom. He was born in England. So, yeah, he's born in Newcastle. Yeah. Wow, but his accent, it, yeah. it always sounds like he's faking it. Right, exactly. It's just so <laughs> strange to me. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the case. But again... You that's know, so bizarre. Yeah, I always thought that he was an Australian doing an English accent, which is why I thought it was off. But it's just his yeah. accent. All right, fair enough. Yeah, like he, I, I don't know if he was born in England and then he grew up like here, maybe when he was a teenager or something. But yeah, for some reason that accent, I just it's dodgy. But um, yeah, I can't listen uh, test- to it for long stretches, uh, even though I like him in things like uh, Pacific Pacific Rim and things like that. Yeah, I like Pacific Rim too. Um, yeah, but I think it's a, a testament to. To James Gray also taking that performance out of him, like I feel like, yeah, it's it's one of his best performances. I feel, and um, and this is also the time where you know Rob Pattinson was starting to to really pick like interesting projects, you know, yeah. and uh, it really, I find like, his in- career arc riveting because he started out in Harry Potter movies and Twilight movies and was being geared up to be this next big teen starlet. And he's like, you know what? Fuck you. I want to work with Claire Denis. I want to work with David Cronenberg. Yeah. I want to work with James Gray. And the yeah. fact that he's been able to exactly. take charge of his career and pivot toward this really challenging, interesting, provocative work. Mm-hmm. I've got all the, respect in the world for Robert Pattinson and how he basically Absolutely. just chosen to avoid these stupid fucking movies in exchange for working with some of the most interesting filmmakers alive. 
yeah, he's, he now has like such a varied like filmography that it's just incredible. So I, I also love that you know he's he's carrying those teenage fans with him. Like they're they're gonna like follow him through these like strange uh, films, and uh, I I like that idea of like kind of broadly like um, expanding your um, uh, your your spectrum in terms of well, taste. Well, interesting is that Kristen Stewart's in a similar thing. Kristen Stewart yeah. was doing these Snow White movies and these uh, and these um, Twilight movies. But then she's yeah. like, no, I want to work with uh, Olivia Sayas, and I want to work with Sayas, yeah. Yeah, so it's great. maybe at some point Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson almost had like a clarification <laughs> ceremony on one of the Twilight movies. Like, we're going to make some serious money off these movies, and then we're going to go off and have these really exciting careers. But they've taken similar paths where they've really yeah. avoided the limelight. Of course, now they're both coming back to it because Kristen Stewart's doing Charlie's Angels, and Robert Pattinson obviously is the bat. Yeah. Um, but he's also doing something like uh, – kind of creative and artistic is he the new christopher nolan is he intended he he very well might be i i, I know nothing yeah. i know nothing about the nolan's next oh week. i i saw the teaser before the joker i saw it in 70 millimeter in um, the dome and uh yeah I'm, I'm i'm on board for it it's such a uh it was a real tease like it was a minute long like you just gotcha. see like a minute so but the, i yeah, so that, that's not online yet um, no, yeah, that's a weird thing. Like they they first like took it out for um uh for Hobbs and Shaw. Like if you attended like the f- opening night of Hobbs and Shaw, you would have seen it before okay. the movie. But then now I think they're just gradually like peppering it in there, like with these uh, large format screenings. So yeah, even I think IMAX. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited for that. So he, I'm always yeah, excited he's, for Nolan. Yeah, I mean I know some people. He's got right. his detractors who find him cold, but goddamn, mm-hmm. like. Dark Knight's a hell of an entertaining yeah. movie. <laughs> I mean, it's a, yeah, people right, can for sure. take their yeah. cold criticisms yeah. and they can fuck themselves. Yeah, and I, I just love that there is that ambition. I mean, I liked um, uh, the last film, Dunkirk, too, yeah. because of, yeah, let's do something ambitious. And yeah, okay, like, it doesn't quite fit together and it can be gimmicky in terms of structure, but, like, he's trying things that I want to see. Like, I'm just like, yeah, let's see how he does it. And even if he fails, like, um, yeah, I still want to see it. Well, that's the same thing with The Lost City of Zed. I really respect what he tried mm. to achieve. There's just some yep. scenes that don't play for me. Like the scene with the fortune teller in the trenches of World War One. It's like, how did mm. this make the final cut? Remove this right. entire scene. Your film is 10 minutes shorter. And mm. it's just a win-win. And it, it, the, the scene adds nothing. And right. it's poorly constructed. It's kind of clumsy. It's kind of awkward and gimmicky. It's like, what are we watching? Are we watching a movie about obsession? Are we watching like another Fitzcarraldo? Are we watching <laughs> some weird hocus pocus, stupid supernatural movie? Like, I really felt like the movie was really, I was feeling the length during that bit. Yeah. But the movie's at its best when it's dealing with obsession and it's dealing with just this preoccupation right. of a little bit of evidence and following this trail of breadcrumbs into the most dangerous parts of the planet. Mm-hmm possibly finding a city that gives evidence because you know when this movie is taking place there's a lot of pretty hardcore racist ideas that because these people are primitive because white people have never been there that there can't be possibly have been a civilization a long time ago and obviously we know now that there's plenty of civilizations all throughout north and south america going way the hell back but that that for me was the most interesting it's like to stay in the jungle like mm-hmm. get out of the trenches get get out of england get back into the jungle because that's where it's most mysterious and most dangerous Absolutely. and most provocative and those scenes i'm sure they suck to shoot but they're the most powerful in the movie yeah and i mean the thing is uh, you bring up two two points that i'd like to add to which is i i do appreciate the those scenes where like he's debating with with the government and all of those things because 
um, just showing that the practicalities of it, that it's not all adventure, that you need to go through red tape. You know, you need funding. Yeah, you like, need investors. Oh, it's a three-year adventure yeah. for a couple of people, and you need you right. need gear, you need crew, you need food. I and mean, it's a huge, yeah. giant fucking pain in the ass filling yeah, in exactly. the blank spots on the map. Mm-hmm. And just how, like, it, it, you know, you're there is this idea, and I mean, that that is the ending of the movie, where you may never come back. You know, you like, there's just this chance that you could get lost, and then that's it. You know, and also he's motivated uh, yeah. by the fact that his father was a drunkard and a gambler who squandered the family fortune. So he's always had to yeah. live with this idea that I need to make a name for myself. I need to find, I need to make my fame, my fortune, and yeah. I'm only going to be able to do that by being a soldier who takes risks. And that's, I can be a soldier as an explorer. I can be a soldier quite literally in the trenches, but I need to go out and carve my own destiny and rebuild yeah. what my father took from us. Yeah, and again, that's one of the things that James Gray mentions, what drew him to the material, because, you know, it's like, why would he pick, like, the, this kind of um, adventure story about Percy Fawcett and, you know, not have the yeah. personal somehow imbued in it? And it's a know? novel by, or a book by David Grant, and apparently, right. the the as we see in the movie, it has very little resemblance to the man itself and how he was motivated and what he was like. So I think it was an opportunity for them just to make a movie about exploring South yeah. America in the early part of the 20th century. Yeah. And I, there, it has so many and, good yeah. things. It just, for me, it's, and I think Apocalypse Now suffers from a lot of flaws as well, but I don't think it's up there with the gear of the wrath of God. I don't think it's up there with Fitzcarraldo. I, I think it falls short of being one of those yeah. great South American to Helen back adventure stories. Right. <laughs> Yeah, and to, to bring up another point relating to that, I mean, the, the other thing is just how James Gray chooses to, like, collaborate with screenwriters on some films and then, like, just go off on his own in terms of writing. And this is one where he, he flies solo. So I just am, like, wondering, like, what it could have been had he collaborated with the screenwriter. It, it's really too bad because I do think his best collaboration obviously isn't... Um, with two lovers, and he wrote it like uh, with Vic Minello, who also co-wrote um, uh, uh, *The Immigrant*. But then he passed away, so this was the the film he made right after it. Um, but yeah, like I think it is. I uh, the the movies benefit more with him collaborating with a screenwriter instead of him just going off on his own. What are you thinking about? I do what I do because of my dad. He was a hero. He gave his life for the pursuit of knowledge. Control, you getting that over? It's crazy out there. There's fires everywhere and plane crashes. They're calling it a surge. Major, we have some highly classified information. What can you tell us about the Lima project? Its objective was to search for advanced extraterrestrial life. The ship disappeared approximately 16 years into the mission. And the commander was? He was my father, sir. This might come as quite a shock to you. Your father was experimenting with a highly classified material that could threaten our entire solar system. All life would be destroyed. We're counting on you to find out what's happening out there. 
I worry about you. I love you. Please begin your psychological evaluation. As best you can, please describe your current mental and emotional state. I'm feeling good. Ready to do my job to the best of my abilities. I remain fully committed to the lawful completion of the mission. If necessary, I will destroy the project in its entirety. The Earth puts hopes in him. And now, it's fate. It's on me. We have a job to do. Are you ready? I'm ready. Well, let's switch gears to the the reason we got together to do this in the first place. He's got Perfect. a new movie out, Ad Astra. This is a movie I really kind of fell under its spell when I saw it. But the world doesn't necessarily see it from my point of view because so far its worldwide gross has only been $111 million. And I think yep. everybody involved in the movie was hoping for something dramatically larger. But man, well, I saw this a week before it opened, and they actually had an astronaut who teaches at uh, Columbia, who's the first astronaut to tweet from space, just to come in about his experiences as an astronaut, astronaut going into space, just talking about his love and affection for this beautiful blue marble that we live on. And there's something about Ad Astro that had a, like, I think it's the most hypnotic, immersive, kind of out-of-body experience I've had yet watching a, uh, a James Gray movie. It really has like a special quality to it. My only mm -hmm. reservation about it at all, and this might be about what was kind of foisted upon him, I think the ending is a little too complete, a little too neat, and doesn't quite have the yeah. abstraction and ambiguity that I was hoping for that would give it that kind of 2001 level yes. kind of yeah. scope. But like 90% of it, I just sat there in the front row, like drooling in ecstasy, like, oh my God, I love this movie. And, <laughs> but I'm looking right now, its budget was 87 million point five. So in order for the people behind it to feel like they're making their money back, because once again, it gets shared with the theaters, it gets shared with the stars, yeah. like it need, and there's a lot of marketing costs, it needed to make yeah. like 180 so far to be in mm -hmm. the black. And it has fallen well shy no. of it. <laughs> I mean that that is the trend, right? For James Gray, like uh, I think only We Own the Night is the movie that like barely made its money back. But yeah, all the films just kind of get passed. And I mean, the surprising thing is like Disney really like pushed for this because I was just seeing billboards everywhere, and it was on buses, oh, trailers and, all know. over the place. The hype machine was in overdrive. People were fucking aware of it and talking about it. <laughs> Yeah, but then nobody came out because I remember I, I saw it twice in the theater and both in like full size IMAX screens. And this uh, the first time it was in the middle of the day, so there weren't that many people. But I saw it like prime time, like in the evening. And yeah, another empty IMAX theater. Like it's just surprising to me that people didn't come out to see it. You well, know? I knew there were problems the first night that I saw it because I was leaving the theater and some people were like, oh my God, that was just fucking jaw-dropping. And I heard other people uh -huh. saying, man, that was boring as shit. <laughs> and I could hear yeah. angry debates between friends and family uh -huh. members in the audience as we left. And I was like, oh shit, 
This is not going to be a, a big old slice of uh, you know cake for everybody. Some people are going to want more of like those moon scenes. Like the one of the best action right. scenes in it is when they're on the moon trying to get to the dark side of the moon, and essentially moon pirates come after them. And right. it gives you some visceral thrills there. I think a few more of those might have made it more accessible to people, but I didn't actually yeah. want more action. I wanted more of the spellbinding mystery. Like the first time we right. see Venus, or ne no, it's Neptune. First time we see Neptune, it's like, well, I can just look at. Uh, I, I was actually now I sympathize with you when you watch all your movies about like creeks and planets and things like that. I was like, <laughs> I can just look at Neptune for like the next ten minutes yeah. and just be right. completely absorbed by this awe-inspiring spectacle. Right. I mean, it is definitely a full-on film, but I was just so surprised at how against people, uh, against uh, the the movie, people were like like having really violent reactions. Like I think, you know, like I, I thought like Martin Kessler might like it, but he had like uh, nothing good to say about it. Interesting. I didn't um, see. I didn't see. Yeah. What he, did he have a tweet um, or a well, review or what? Did, what did uh, I, I follow him on Letterbox, and he has a review on there. Um, yeah, look for him. Um, oh, I live in a dorm, Martin. Yeah. What, 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 did, yeah. what did he say? What, how did um, he take it down? Can, can I just bring it up real quick? Oh, sure, by all means. <laughs> yeah, give me one Shout second. out to Martin Kessler, because uh, he's coming on Wrong Reel in a couple of weeks to talk about uh, oh, Slavic folklore horror movies. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, there we go. All right. So, oh, he expanded it a little bit. Um, all right, I'll read Martin, Martin's review. Here's your little cameo, Martin. So, and, what's, asked, and what's his profile name on uh, Letterboxd so people can find him? Uh, he's movie... Uh, no, I think it's just Martin Kessler. He goes okay. by that. But his Twitter handle is uh, Movie Kessler. But he said, Ad Astra is very tastefully made, so it's a shame that the sto its story is kind of dumb. <laughs> 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 you can tell that James Gray really wanted to make a profound sci-fi film, and if he had the story like Solaris or something similar, I think he would have knocked it out of the park. Also, every so often, it felt like there was a, a scene uh, shoehorned into Ad Astra to keep people from getting bored, which had the opposite effect by just feeling unnecessary and upsetting the carefully crafted tone. I love his last line, though. This is what he says. Ruth Nega is a sexy um, Martian, though. <laughs> she is. She has she's, she's a good scene. But what I liked about it, and it didn't even occur to me as I was watching it, but I guess I started realizing toward the end how it's basically Heart of Darkness in space. And for people I've right. been, and of course, in my what kills me is that in my review that I posted on YouTube, instead of referring to uh, Joseph Conrad, who wrote Heart of Darkness, I said Joseph Campbell. So, like, half of my comments are all, it's Joseph Conrad, not Correct. Joseph Campbell. I'm like, I know, and if you see in the comments, I've already apologized and said I know like a thousand <laughs> times, but obviously Joseph Campbell read like, Power of Myth and things like that and has written a lot of really incredible things about you know just mythological stories. Yeah. And Joseph Conrad wrote Heart of Darkness, yeah. which is the foundation yeah. of Apocalypse Now, but I like right. this idea of going further and further mm -hmm. into the wilderness, into just the, the extremes of humanity where it just gets darker and stranger and more bewildering. And it's what Apocalypse Now should have been, but now with every version that Coppola keeps like redoing, it like right. screws up the whole year. journey and spine of the story. It's like, stop fucking with it. Just leave it alone. Yeah. So that element yeah, of it I really enjoyed. That it's, it's Heart of Darkness in Space, and I feel like so many great stories of the British Empire – fiction and or nonfiction from the 1800s could easily be redone as mm -hmm. sci-fi. Like we talked about the, the Bill Scurry up about Mutiny on the Bounty. Imagine if you did Mutiny on the Bounty, but did it instead as like a Star Trek episode. Like all okay. these tales of the British Empire are perfect to be reimagined in the, in the, under the 
the kind of like the oh, guys yeah. of sci-fi. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, just the idea of a ship, right? Like yeah. it's the same thing, so, you know, sailing the seas and exploring space. Instead of the heart of darkest Africa, you're going into the heart right. of like the darkest heart of space. Yeah. It, it's such a rich like yeah text to go back to. And I mean, uh, going back though to the apocalypse now, um, heart of darkness comparison, uh, just I actually like caught on with it early on because the first like jarring thing to me about Ad Astra compared to everything we have seen before is that it's the first James Gray movie with narration, you know? True. And yeah, so I was just like, why is this going on? And then I wasn't really a fan of it to begin with. And I instantly thought of Apocalypse Now because I was like, I'm seeing what you're talking about. And I don't really reiterate takes, like, what's already readily apparent. Right. The, like the, saying, the voiceover should add something. Right, like saying that um, Lauren Dean's character, you know, he was the lieutenant on the, the transport that was taking him to um, to Mars. Like you're saying, like, he's feeling fear. And I'm like, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I don't know. And like the most cringeworthy line for me, actually, in the narration was the when he's he's on his way to meet his father um, towards Neptune. Like he, he says, like, you know, the son has to pay for the sins of the father. And I was like, oh, really? Like, it's too on the nose. I think a yeah. lot of this is like helping guide the less observant audience members mm -hmm. by the hand or guide them by the nose so they can understand yeah. what the hell is happening. But yeah, voiceover is always tricky because you've got great examples like Clockwork Orange or Full Metal Jacket where the voiceover really adds something. And then you got examples like, um, like Platoon where I'm like, take yeah. the voiceover out entirely and the movie is like way better. And <laughs> everything that Charles Sheen said in that is like, is yes. abundantly apparent. So, right. but yeah, once you start dealing with voiceover though, it's a really, easy crutch to fall on because it just makes things too easy yeah i'm just wondering you know what what was the the mindset behind that and i you know, i haven't really looked into enough interviews with him to kind of understand other than yeah it's like hey i'm i'm like kind of um, making a tribute to one of my favorite movies by making it like apocalypse now in space you know by having this but oh sorry i, I should say there are certain points though that it, it is i feel that the 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 narration is justified because what is like ultimately the movie is about is about a certain type of masculinity, right? Of just like you have yeah. to just work, work now, orders. work now, play later, right? Um, do your job, like you know, don't um, don't have like any kind of emotional attachment to things. Like I, I almost think of, of Robert De Niro's character in Heat as well. well you know, this whole thing about his character is that he's he's the man who's totally focused on the job to the point where he almost has no emotion. His heart rate never goes above 80 beats per minute. Even when he's falling out of the sky, like plummeting toward the planet, his heart rate doesn't raise. Right. So he's the right. ultimate cool under fire customer. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. You bring that up. Speaking of like impressive openings, like what an opening to a film that like space, um, like that extended satellite into above the atmosphere. Yeah, it's and basically a needle going from the surface of the planet up to like above Earth's atmosphere. It goes up thousands of fucking miles, but it's because right. it, it, we are in the not so distant future. So it's, it's like what we have to now, but just enhanced just a little bit. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's, it, it's incredible how he, he chose to begin with that scene. Um, and seeing it in IMAX too was just amazing. And I guess we haven't brought this up either, um, but that is another thing with every film he's made. Everything is shot on film. Like, he's never made a digital film. Like, uh, he, it's kind of a thing that he 
here requires, but he's not really lumped in with like Tarantino or PTA or, or Christopher Nolan as like, you know, those One staunch. Defenders. Like, Interesting. Well, I guess he yeah. just likes to make life difficult for himself because that's the first <laughs> thing that drives studios crazy is when a filmmaker is like, well, I really want to shoot this movie on film. They're like, oh my God, yeah. well, you just increase our budget by 5%. Yeah. <laughs> right. How, how does he continue to carry this clout when, you know, his films don't make any money? That's the thing that amazes not me about him. Not like, money. They outright lose money. So yeah, I, I, I'm not right. entirely sure how he keeps kind of failing upward but it must right. just be that there are certain actors like Brad Pitt or actors like Joaquin Phoenix or actors like you know Charlie Hunter Robert Pattinson who are just dying to work with them they see a movie by him they fall in love with it so if you like Brad Pitt's obviously his own producer more often than not if yeah. Brad Pitt wants to fight to the death defending your vision he will do so as he did there with um, yeah, the assassination of Jesse James that movie lost oh. every single dollar that was ever put into it but, yeah, but Brad Pitt fought, great, fought great to the death movie. to defend yeah. it worth it Totally worth it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad that Brad Pitt does that and that, yeah, he helped this movie, like, come into existence. Because uh, to me, like, it is – I love this little trend of these um, outer space movies that have been coming out, even though I don't really have any interest in seeing Lucy in the Sky. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, and I – I like the guy who did Lucy in the Sky. He did, like, uh, all, all three seasons of Fargo. And he also okay. did uh, Legion. What the hell's his name? Totally blanking on his name. And I've been doing all these fucking YouTube videos about him. In any case, Fargo season two is fucking outstanding. It's, okay. it's that guy. All right. Well, I, I'll probably go back and see. I've never watched the Fargo TV show, oh, dude, but Fargo, um, it's well. There are standalone seasons, but Fargo season uh-huh. one and two are really good. But Fargo season two is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. <laughs> it's really, really right. good. Oh, that's high praise. All right. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Uh, and then you know, obviously, there's Gravity that came before this, and um, there was another space, yeah, Interstellar. Yes, yeah. and you know, there is that carryover. He uses the same cinematographer. It's almost like, yeah, let's, uh, you're shooting a space movie. Let's bring in Hoyt Van Hoytema. Yeah. Like he's the go-to like uh, space guy. And it, it's interesting because you see like Hoyt Van Hoytema's like touch in this film, because what he really mastered is the reflection on like the, the space helmet, like how he utilizes that in, um, his cinematography is like a quintessential Hoyt Van Hoytema. Um, and yeah, I mean, there is like things in the film that I, I think are kind of missed opportunities too, because it's like uh, he he got uh, Max Richter to do the score, but like I felt like the score was fairly generic, other than like the the really tense moments in the film, um, like the the score in general was just like kind of not that memorable. Um, oh, another recent space movie though that I also enjoyed um, was First Man. And that's saying a lot because I don't like Damon Chazelle, but like I really like First Man. Yeah, I didn't Man. see First Man. I, I, I had oh, zero appeal to me. I, I liked it. And I mean, that has a unique soundtrack. That's why I brought it up. Plus, I guess, again, another point of like I kind of talking myself into appreciating the the voiceover in Ad Astra. Um, like Ryan Gosling has like a very impenetrable like performance in, in First Man. And... I, I guess it's apt because, you know, you have to have, like, that that psychological makeup to be an astronaut. Like, they can't have you panicking in space, obviously. Um, and I like that in Ad Astra, that's what James Gray is trying to explore. Is like, okay, here's this man who is um, the perfect astronaut. He's the ideal astronaut. But, yeah, what is happening with him that, like, um, uh, that is where, you know, he's more human in a way because he is crumbling and, like, um, 
one of the best scenes to me. That's why I don't feel like the action is like forced. Like I love the 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 rapid baboon space baboon. Oh, that scenes. when that happened, yeah. I was like, "What the fuck is going on?" But like, all right, well, I'm into it. Let's do this. This is terrifying. But yeah, when yeah. you first see it, I, I that got my attention. Right, and um, you know his kind of um, debriefing after that, which is another part that I liked in another Ryan Gosling film in in uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine, which I I want to actually now go back to because I hated it when it first came out, but like now I'm like more open to like watching it again. But I've seen a lot know, of scenes many times over, but god damn that movie was slow, so beautiful. Yeah, right. But yeah, I just have a really hard time to, all right, yeah. let's get excited to watch Blade Runner 2049. It's like, I'd rather just watch certain, like, I will watch any scene. Was it uh, Ana de Armas who's in that? Like, you know, she's yeah. just so beautiful. I'll watch any scene where she's where she's a feature. Oh, yeah. I mean, that that is the best scene to me in the film is that that virtual threesome that they have is just, like, incredible. Absolutely. But, uh, but yeah, like, the debriefing scenes in, in Blade Runner 2049 was also fascinating to me. And, like, you know, if you don't pass the the psychological exam it's like you're not you know um suitable for carrying on like you can't do your job do not pass go do not collect 200 to did you go into jail (laughs) yeah and yeah I'll, i'll say like those things that people find implausible in this film uh i i think are totally fair like just even him sneaking on to that that ship you know when they're on their way to to neptune and they all accidentally off themselves basically yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, well, they're, like they're, they're not exactly experts in hand-to-hand combat even right. though they're like yeah. on like a seek and destroy mission <laughs> right in general protocol it's like don't get out of your seat when the the ship is about to launch like you know um you're gonna hit your head and die <laughs> like the, those kinds of things it's just like at that point I, I i was so on board with the movie that all of those things were passable for me i was just like yeah this is part of it and i mean you know brad pitt is basically a murderer in the film he kills so many people in it um but uh i mean that is one of the things that speaks to me and something that's trending with james gray and i hope he continues it is this idea of like traveling and how transient people are in your life and that's pretty much what happens to to brad pitt's character in this film is that he He's um, people are just transient in his life. They even Donald Sutherland is supposed to accompany him through the yeah, mission. Yeah, can't make it. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's like I'm fine. Like two minutes later, yeah, I'm totally fucked. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I, I shout out to people who noticed that also, like Tommy Lee Jones and, and um, Donald Sutherland were both in Space Cowboys. Absolutely, absolutely. And like in Space Cowboys, Tommy Lee Jones flies off on his own to, at the very end. Of course, at the end, he's lying on the moon listening to Frank Sinatra, which is quite different from uh, the ending where he gets yeah. like hurled into Neptune. Right. And I, I, I was also a little disappointed with, with the third act because I, I did – even though Brad Pitt like just acts the shit out of that scene with it's his account. It's a really good performance by Brad Pitt, uh, without a doubt. Yeah, I, I wanted it to like resonate with me more, you know, I, especially I just, that... When you're standing in the shadow of 2001 where you have just the ultimate ending that takes your mind and like rips it open and explodes it into the cosmos, I mm-hmm. thought we were building towards something equally revelatory. And I was like, oh, this ending's just kind of conventional. How yeah. disappointing because I was it, so on board every step of the way up until the very end. Right. It's a lot closer to um, Steven Soderbergh's version of Solaris than <laughs> 2001 yeah. <laughs> or even Tarkovsky's Solaris. But, you know, there are also parallels with that that I, I like because, you know, um, obviously Tarkovsky also revisits the theme of like um, the son, you know, kind of um, being separated from the father and how they're trying to reconcile but i mean you know the the ending of solaris is just 
that blows me away. Like that, that to me is a lot more affecting. But I mean, you know, criticisms against it too. Like Liv Tyler kind of shows up uh, a lot more in the trailer than she does in the actual film. You and know, she I, even I, has until like, you mentioned her, I totally <laughs> forgot she was even in this movie. So right, exactly, <laughs> and that's how it ends. It's them like um, meeting at each other in the bar. You know, like she shows up, and but she's outside of the glass. And I do like that that kind of um, estranged couple like reconciling through glass. Like that's something that happens in, in Paris, Texas too. It's like, yeah, there's still that, uh, that I, barrier. I would prefer something you. totally cosmic. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, ultimately like what you bring up is I think James Gray does fall in between two stools in this film because I feel he, there's, there's a conflict within him now because if he's really going to be true to like the classicism that he wants to do it, he's resisting against it in this film. I feel like there's just so many like abstract touches in the film that he could like go further into, but he doesn't quite, I mean, even just the, the whole Mars sequence when he arrives and then um, Ruth Nega emerges out of the darkness. And then when they're walking together, like it suddenly like gets darker and darker behind them. Like there's shots like that, or like his whole journey to like get to the ship launching for Neptune. Like he has to go through this underwater sequence and he's like you know following this line and it's like there's just these beautiful like abstract sequences in the film but he's just allowing himself that like i think he's almost like holding back a little and instead of just like yeah let's just make a batshit crazy abstract film like let's do the last yeah, it's like- funny like this is a film, he's obviously so talented and he's worked with so many great people and he's made a lot of really good movies there's just this strange missing quantity that either perhaps on his end or just due to the realities of the industry, because obviously, right. to be a good filmmaker, it doesn't. It's not just about being a good filmmaker. You also have to be able to play the game. And there are some filmmakers who are very great, very good at navigating the studio system and dealing with notes and dealing with input and dealing with all the various pressures that can destroy your movie or have it taken out of right. your hands. There's some filmmakers who really know how to play that game really, really well. And I feel like Nolan's one of those guys, right? Clint Eastwood's one of those guys, mm-hmm. and. It really helps if you have a few hits. If you have a few hits under your belt, it helps you win a lot of those battles. And goddamn, right. James Gray, he needs to make an unqualified, successful movie. Something like a yeah. $10 million budget that grosses like 90 or something like that. Just something that's just a smash yeah. un- under the circumstances. Because if you keep losing money, guess what? It makes it harder and harder and harder to win all those creative battles. Yeah, exactly. And like, I, I'm just wondering now, like, where does it... Um where will like the studios draw the line and just like say, well, Hey, you're not making us money. Like we're not going to give you any more to, to make your next one. And that will be a shame because like, I think also there is as much as like his films are flawed, there is like this upward trend with them in terms of what he's trying out and exploring. And I want to see more of it, you know, but who knows? Yeah. How long we'll have to wait for the next one. And if it, it requires him to have like another A-list star to champion him and say like, yeah, James Gray's my boy, and like I want him. To he make needs a, a producer like Steven Soderbergh or someone who kind of just take him under the under the their mm. wing and say, "Look, this is how the game is played." Soderbergh is a master of doing movies for like five bucks on your iPhone, or doing like a hundred million dollar movie with like fifty thousand movie stars, doing right. like like a casino heist. He knows how to do every kind of movie of every shape and size, mm-hmm. on every available platform. He he knows how to do it all. And I feel like he would be the perfect guy to take James Gray by the hand. And yeah, start. for here's, sure. Here's but, some advice about how to just be a studio fucking player. 
Right, but I would think that that would also entail like convincing him that he needs <laughs> to shoot on digital. Like he would have to really, because that's the only way. I think like yeah. the budgets are, are going to be large regardless if he, he continues to shoot on film. And I mean, I appreciate that, but he's not like PTA or or Christopher Nolan or Tarantino. It's just uh, it's sad because they all have I hits. Think, point two. If you're making right. you're PTA, like ooh, maybe we're going to have another Boogie Nights. We're going Tarantino, like. I mean, it's his most commercially successful film is Django and Chain. It's like, woo, that made like $350 million. Right. And Christopher so, Nolan, he's in the B club. Like, there's not a lot of filmmakers on the planet who've made movies that gross over a billion dollars. And Nolan is right. one of those guys. They're like, I think there's a list of like 10 directors who have pulled it off. Right. So that's why, yeah, I'm sad. I was hoping that Ad Astra would be this film. But I mean, you know, there were other factors in it too. Just originally, this was a Fox movie. I mean, it's still under the banner of Fox, but, you know, the acquisition happened and yeah. that. Also help, uh, but Disney <laughs> did push it. Like some of these Fox they did, movies they did. have just completely barfed all over themselves, like Struber and, and things like like or Dark and Dark Stuber, Phoenix yeah. like, or Stuber, whatever yeah. the fuck it's called. Yeah. But a couple of these Fox acquisitions, I mean, Dark Phoenix is the mm. worst performing X Men movie ever by a huge margin. Oh it was a biblical <laughs> level flop that was hated by X Men fans, and I mean, it's what. Disney wouldn't have cared if it had made money, but it's both hated and a flop. And so, yeah, a lot of these movies that Disney has acquired, they're like, God damn, like, what, why did we buy Fox again? <laughs> I know. Well, they wanted the, the Marvel characters. Yeah, they wanted, those characters. They wanted the IP yeah. without a doubt. They got a lot yeah, of great IP without a doubt. But, but the movies yeah. that were already in the pipeline, most of them have failed to perform so far. Yeah, which is a shame. It well, really is. If, as a way of just closing things out, if you were... James Gray's producer moving forward toward yeah. what destiny would you guide him? Like what, what material and scale do you think would kind of put him back on firm footing so that he can continue to work for the next 20, 30 years up until the, the bitter end? Yeah. I mean, as much as I would like him to like go in a more abstract direction, that's like Carlo, like, you know, personal bias. Um, the logical thing is really to go back to a crime movie. Like he would need to like make some sort of, I think crime epic that, you know, I, I like a movie like Eastern promises or something like that. Right. Or I, I haven't seen Irishman, but like the buzz that that's been getting. And like, I think if Irishman does well at like a three and a half hour running time, like, um, that, that could be something that he could like latch on to. Or like to, a killer you know. miniseries for HBO, like a four or five episode, like crime saga, sure. like something like that. Like, I feel like that he has options, but man, mm -hmm. he, he can't keep making flops. Yeah, I, I, I think maybe even, yeah, TV would be, like, a logical destination because you don't have to worry about that, you know, like, that yeah. would... Apple's, <laughs> yeah. Apple's looking for filmmakers. Netflix is looking <laughs> for filmmakers. Amazon's looking for yeah. filmmakers. Like, they're all these new players. Go talk yeah, to those guys. He, he worked with Amazon before. I mean, that's why Lost City of Zed got made was because he, he managed to ride that, like, that first year of Amazon where they were just, like, throwing money at all these ambitious projects, which like Patterson also came out of that. And like, I, I mean, I love it, but obviously that, that producer or that head of Amazon, um, whatever they called mm -hmm. it, Amazon studios, like mm -hmm. he got etudes, and then they put the kibosh on it. And it's like, okay, now we're only going to be making safe Amazon productions. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Yeah. So, but yeah, I would, I would say it just makes sense for me, uh, to have him like go into a, another crime story and, I, I would still let him like shoot on film for sure. Like, you know, it's so essential and I'll make it for 10 million or something like that. Yeah. 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 For sure. Not 90. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see his opera. I'm going to go see it next year when it comes out. Um, Marriage of Figaro. 
Um, one, of, one, of, one of Mozart's greatest. Right. And how he handles that material. I, yeah, it's his first time where he's not using his own text, you know? So... Well, cool. Well, Carlo, it's always a pleasure talking flicks with you, and thanks for pitching Absolutely. this topic because it gave me a chance to see five movies by him that I had not seen yet. So, uh, sure. yeah, it was. It was. I'm, I'm always down for the undiscovered country when it comes to dusting off filmographies with which I'm not familiar. But if people want to keep this conversation going, where's the best place to find you online, um, and so on <laughs> and so forth? So the last time I was on, I, I, I kind of was. Re, uh, I started to become active on Twitter again, but then I. I um I felt like dumb after like 15 minutes, so I I I'll I'll try to be active on Twitter um, for this one uh, if if people want to engage in conversation about James Gray because I uh, so whenever this episode comes out I'm at Astro and you can't uh, lean on Mikhail this time because also he doesn't talk on fucking Twitter either. Like when I posted the no. last episode, I was like, sure glad I did this episode with Mikhail and Carlo. They're not talking to anybody about what we did. <laughs> yeah, I, I I also got really busy around that time too, so it was just the timing of it but I, I wanted to engage in more conversation but um but yeah like for this one if, if people want to talk james gray and yeah th- thanks for having me again jamie i really always appreciate it it's funny how like all my my um my appearances on the show this year have always been like the next like every quarter so every season so like i i showed up in january and i think the next one was like march april that's true yeah, yeah. So yeah we did michael lee and then we did long movies then we did music videos and now we're doing james grace so right we'll to start uh chewing on well i'm doing fewer episodes of wrong real these days just i'm okay. putting so much work into my uh my uh youtube channel but we'll have to start debating some possible topics for maybe well, in mean- uh, december or january well, I feel like it, it would be like an appropriate capper if you'll have me. Like, uh, I'd like to come back for your um, your year end episode because I feel like I, I also will have a very different list for most people. And just considering this year too, I haven't seen that many films that I truly liked so far. But I feel like it's coming up. Like this last like uh, quarter of the year, like there's all these movies I'm looking forward to, and like I think my list will be more bottom heavy than top heavy in terms of like chronology. So gotcha. Yeah. yeah I didn't do one last year cause I got really sick, but in the years past uh-huh. it's always been, it's been uh Kato and Penn who do it, but we'll have to discuss that because I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do. Yeah. I'm definitely going to do one for my YouTube channel, but no matter what, we will find a topic in which we, where we can sure. unleash you sooner as opposed to later. All right, man. Well, we hope you all enjoyed this episode. Remember to subscribe to the podcast, leave a rating and review. You can find me on Twitter at Colbrax. And if you want to drink coffee like a wrong reel fiend or wear some wrong reel gear, there's a link in the show notes below to where you can buy the wrong reel merch. People have been buying it, which is fucking awesome. So, yeah, send me a pic on Twitter of you wearing your gear or drinking from the coffee cup. I will post it. People can see how cool you look. But if you want to get some additional content in the near future, I'm always posting stuff on my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock. Just posted a review of Joker. I'm working on my review now of Parasite and going to be seeing Gemini Man this Thursday, which I think is going to suck, but I'm going to see it anyway. <laughs> that review will be up soon. But can't thank you enough for listening. Always appreciate it. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.